if you think what you thought, and you say what you said, and you do what you did, you know what you're going to have? What you had. That's the place where most of them will never change. When you're at your happiest, and everyone should be happy, don't get me wrong, it's the time when you don't usually, it's when there's a crack, when something is wrong, that's when you start thinking. Why don't, why can't we change when we're happy? If a person knows they have a broken heart, that's good. Alas, to those that die with their song still inside them. This episode is sponsored by Karen Ashana. This is very interesting. I actually did not know this, but there is a principle of giving charity every single day. You know, we often find that we'll write a check, right? Every so often we'll write a check to charity and we'll feel like we've done our part and we have. But what Karen Hashana does, which I find very interesting, is that they distribute money on your behalf for tzedakah every single day so you can fulfill the mitzvah of charity every day. Or twice, is it twice a day that they do? Twice a day before, before morning prayers and before the afternoon prayers. What's beautiful about this organization, Karen Hashana, is that it's the Lubavitcher Rebbe that founded it. He wanted to ensure that each one of us have that merit to give tzedakah every day. And so he established this 70 years ago, and this is uh, running and people are giving more than ever. Um, and this year, there's actually 383 days. So for 383 days, for the whole year, it'll be taken care of for you. On the Jewish calendar. On the Jewish okay. calendar. Yeah. Except Shabbos, right? And holidays. Yes. The money will be distributed through Machane Israel and um, it'll be given to, it goes to help needy people, single parents and families, educational subsidies for children whose parents can't afford tuition, emergency medical assistance for shluchim in crisis, and for many other people in need. And, uh, in the past year alone, millions of dollars were distributed towards these services, and if you want to participate in doing an act of goodness and kindness every single day, and it being done on your behalf, my husband and I have participated in this already. And yeah, it's very special because it's taken care of for you. And it's not about how much you give. It's the fact that you're giving tzedakah every day. When you give tzedakah every day, it brings Hashem's light down here in this world, more so than any other mitzvah. You are lighting up your day and you're lighting up the world. And you're helping somebody else every single day, twice a day. And so this is indeed powerful. The Rebbe actually encouraged to do this before Rosh Hashanah, before Yom Kippur, over Tishrei. So this is the perfect time to donate to Karen Hashanah. You can give half a cent a day. You could give a dollar a day. Whatever you feel will work for you and your family. You can be a giver every day and donate to mykarenhashanah.com. And the link will be in our podcast notes. Speaking of the high holidays, this time of year is a very spiritual time of year on the Jewish calendar. It's a time when we want to be present and we want to have some tools to deepen our spirituality and to deepen our experiences with the people that we love and to deepen our relationship with Hashem. Uh, we wanted to find a way, a practical, attainable way to do that. And we thought the best man for the job would be Rabbi Simon Jacobson. It's timeless wisdom for really all year round. Hi, I'm Rivka. And I'm Ida. Welcome to From the Inside Out, now a global community that keeps growing every day thanks to each and every one of you. Right here is where you'll discover life-changing insights from some of the world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and our everyday heroes. We believe that meaningful change comes from taking inspiration and turning it into action. 
In fact, that's how this podcast was created, in an Uber, where we were both inspired by each other's life experiences and how much we could learn from each other. We're so glad you've joined our conversation today. The path to meaningful change starts right here, right now. Welcome back, Rabbi Jacobson. It's great to have you here. Last time we had you on the podcast, we were inspired by your spiritual guide to uh, the Omer, to counting the Omer. And now that we're in the Jewish holiday season, Rivka and I were talking about the spiritual guide to the high holidays, which we're both doing. Um, I've done this every day, and it's been quite incredible and life-changing. Um, I see it's a bestseller on Amazon. I've shared the link with many people, and I've gifted it too. And uh, so this is the season you know, the, of, of uh, forgiveness and of, uh, of accounting and letting go and um, hopefully going to a guilt-free zone. So we'd love for you to share with us uh, the inspiration here behind the book and talk to us about how we can be guilt-free at this Rosh Hashanah. So first of all, Ida and Rivka, thank you for having me. And I want to commend you for being consistent and persistent and uh, inspiring so many and using these airwaves. Now I hear you've also gone to uh, video. Yeah. And many, many strong, healthy years. Amen. And uh, your uh, broadcast should lead us straight to Mashiach. Amen. Amen. And then you'll continue afterwards. That's How's the that? goal. Okay. That's my... <laughs> yeah. And same to you. Okay. All these brachas straight back to you. Right. And that's what we were taught. We have to use the technology to... Uh, Get the word out. Okay, so uh, so thank you about the book. Well, let me just give you a little background about 60 Days, the Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays. I didn't just write it because I had nothing to do. I wrote it because I felt a serious need. One of the big paradoxes I find, and this is both in people who grew up with Yiddishkeit and in the from world, and people obviously who did not, is that on one hand, the High Holidays, the holiest time of the year, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, you could start a clean slate, Everybody's excited, and almost across the board, people will say afterwards, well, what happened? Well, they say, yeah, you know, maybe I had an inspiring sermon or it was a nice meal, but nobody feels transformed. And it just, to me, resonated because when I grew up, it was the same thing. And I grew up in a very intense Jewish Chabad Hasidic world, with a lot of beautiful things, but when it comes down to it, are we doing this by rote? Is it mechanical? Is it... Uh, is it something out of guilt, out of tradition, out of superstition? You know, once a year you make a deal with God and stuff like that. So being that I encountered many people who had this, uh, I would say, almost alienation, they may go to synagogue, again, out of guilt, but many may not. And they'll just say it was just, you know, long service, boring. I don't even, can't understand half of it. So I decided to do research and just really write a book that tries to personalize and uh, demonstrate the personal and spiritual and psychological and emotional relevance of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and of course, Elul, that precedes it all. So it came to address exactly this issue. So let's talk about guilt. Yeah. You mentioned guilt. Let's mention guilt. Everyone talks about Jewish guilt. The Jews are guilty. You know how many jokes about Jewish guilt? And you know, your mother makes you feel guilty, and she's guilty because her grandmother, or her, you know, the whole thing. Do you, have a, do you have a good joke about Jewish guilt? <laughs> or a Jewish mother? You're putting me on the spot. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, of course. There are, there are, there are many, many. You know, um, it'll come to me as okay. we go. yes. <laughs> and then, then you throw in the Holocaust, and then we're even more guilty. Because look what happened. And, and, it's, and, and a lot of religion is associated with this idea of punishment, judgment. You know, 
I mean, this is a common thing. I can't tell you how many people have told me religion is, connect, is synonymous with fear. Fear of punishment, guilt, that God's going to get you. You better do something about it. And it's, it's uh, so I did a little research on it. And I, frankly, I couldn't even find a Hebrew word for guilt. So I started saying, one second, this may be just one of these modern myths that are not necessarily about Judaism. So I would say the following. Guilt, psychologically, is mostly demoralizing. As people who feel guilty, it's usually that makes them feel down, makes them feel worthless, losers, and, and you get haunted by your past. Can't sleep at night, I did this, I should have done that. It's all tied to regrets and so on. In Judaism, the concept of regret and remorse is only there if you're going to improve your life, if it motivates you to become better. But guilt as an end in itself is frankly toxic. It's a very negative emotion. And if you really think about it, let's be very frank. I mean, God created us as human beings, flawed. There's no perfect. We all will make mistakes. And then what is he coming to get us after we make a mistake? It doesn't make any sense. You create a human being, and they say, okay, now I'll punish you because you sinned. I set you up. And, and that doesn't make any sense. The, the real way to look at it is very straightforward. God created a world. He created us human beings as partners. And partnership requires accountability. So instead of looking at Rosh Hashanah as a day of guilt or judgment, judgment is not judgment. It, it's rather accountability. Tell me where you stand. How did you do? You know, we're partners in business. The year is over. The contract has expired. Before we renew it, let's, let's make an accounting. Let's do an audit. Let's do a soul search, introspection. And that's really the real concept. So I wouldn't even use the word guilt. I would use accountability, soul search, introspection. Remember, trust is built not on perfection. It's built on accountability. And Rosh Hashanah is a day when we renew our trusting relationship with God. He has his vote of confidence in us, and we show responsibility. Here's what we've done. And if there's something that there was a setback or there was a mistake, I'm committed to repair it, make it better. Literally like you would do a reconciliation with one spouse, where maybe something didn't work out exactly. You sit down, you're accountable, you don't cover up, you don't lie, you don't hide it. And you say, okay, let's move forward now and build even a deeper and more loving relationship. I, I can tell you, just last week, I was uh, talking to, uh, to a group of very religious Jews, not from the Hasidic world, from the Litvish world. And when they, they heard this, to them, some of them, they never heard anything like this before. Them, for them, always the month of El was a month of beating your chest and all your... And, and we and, do and, do that. We do say Hashem no pagadna. Yeah, no, because part that. of accountability is you need to acknowledge. But if you only say and confess, and you don't think of it as a relationship, right. and you're just busy in saying how bad I am. Right. I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did that wrong, 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 wrong. And now, okay, don't punish me that much because I'm asking you for compassion. Instead of seeing, one second, what about the vote of confidence? I mean, imagine educating your children, they did something wrong, and all they hear from you is how bad they, they are. You want to tell them, hey, you're a beautiful child, you're a beautiful person, you're a beautiful soul. And because of that, let's try to be even better. It's just, you have to have the love in there. And unfortunately, a lot of our education is very fear-driven. It's very negative-driven. I mean, I'm just being honest of how, how most people experience it. I don't think what I'm saying is going to surprise anyone. Right. It'll surprise anyone that at least we're acknowledging it. Right. And, and we have to look at Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur as beautiful days. Yes, it's days of awe and respect, but it's respect because we have a mission. We have a calling. And we are renewing our mandate, our contract with God, 
of what, why you're here in this world. And the mere fact that you exist, remember, is because God wants you here. Right. If yeah. you really were deserving, you wouldn't be here. You know, I mean, I'm saying that to all of us, you know. Can't fear also be defined as awe, like fear and awe? I would never it's use the word fear. Right. You know what fear is? You're walking late at night and your fear of being mugged. That's fear. Fear of violence, fear of war, fear of an enemy. And when as soon as you use the word fear on God that way, so then God is the mugger. I mean, you know, you get that association. I use awe. I use reverence. Reverence is a great word. Respect. You know, let's say even in relationship between spouses, there has to be love and closeness and intimacy, but there also has to be respect for boundaries, for individuality. Respect and reverence is, is also part of a relationship. It means it's not just I, I, I own you. It's not like, you know, there are, there are, there are boundaries, there's discretion and okay. so on. And I think that's the, the key to it all. Right. So when, we, when you talk about all, and um, in Tanya it says there's a new light that comes on Rosh Hashanah that was never there before. Right. So how do we make that light accessible to us? How do we tap into this energy of bringing heaven down to earth and making this new light feel like we're in a relationship and we're connected to it? That's a great question because um, all of us want newness and freshness in our lives. We always want that opportunity. But I find that you have to also keep in mind that if you come in with your old baggage, so even if a new energy is entering, there's no room for it. You know, imagine you want fresh air in your house, but you're not ready to open the windows. It's not going to work that way. So I think it's critical, and that's why we have this cheshben hanefesh, what we call, this accountability is to like, be ready for something new and fresh. Um, it's like, what, they, what do they say? Insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. So you're going to do the same thing. This Rosh Hashanah, you know, God can be merciful, but most likely you're going to get the same results if you do the same thing. I always like to put it this way. If you think what you thought and you say what you said and you do what you did, you know what you're going to have? What you had. It's a mathematical right. certainty. Right. And right. many of us want something new, but we're not ready to do something for it. Right. So I think the first step is you need to, I'm not baby steps. We're not even talking about necessarily a big resolution. You need to be ready to get out of your comfort zone and say, yes, I want something new and I'm ready to do something new. You know, the Chabad Rebbes, for example, had a custom every Rosh Hashanah, they would take on a new resolution, a new hider, a new emphasis on a certain mitzvah a little extra study, because when you do something new, you've opened up the channel for newness. You know, right. You're not going to get the same new things if you don't do anything new. In Tanya, you brought the Tanya about the new unprecedented energy. There's another chapter, 15, in the beginning of Tanya, where he says that serving God does not mean doing something many times. Because if you do it out of habit, even if you study a hundred times, if that's part of your routine, then you didn't do anything new. It's part of your routine. But if you do 101 you go out of your comfort zone, a little extra, that extra minute. That qualitative shift opens the door for, for newness coming from above. It's really very straightforward. Most people do not want to do that new thing. They want to stay there, but they want the new. Right. But it doesn't work that way. It's like if I, don't have, if I keep looking at you the same way, you're going to look at me the same way. But right. if I give you the extra smile, then I'll probably get a smile back. Right. It's like that quote, people want change, but not if it means changing. You know, yeah, we, exactly. we want to change, but well, they say nothing changes, work? nothing changes. That's what they say in recovery. Right. You know, right. you want change, but you have to, you have to initiate change. Right. And that can come down to a simple thing like this year, every day I'm going to make sure every day at least I say something kind to five people. 
more than I have done in the past. Even small things like that. Who initiates on Rosh Hashanah? Is it Hashem that initiates or we initiate? I, I mean, that's like a husband and wife saying, who's going to initiate? I would say, who's, we're not standing on principle. Whoever does it first is, you know, love doesn't, you don't wait. So I would say we both initiate. I mean, Hashem gave us Rosh Hashanah. But the more we initiate, look, I, I look at it like this. If you're a responsible adult, you have to look at yourself. You can't say, okay, I'm waiting for Hashem. I don't know if that's the right way to go. People who do that, I, you know, I, I, I would not wait. You know, <laughs> if I was in a meeting with you and you didn't say anything, I'd start to be like, I'm not going to wait till, till you, you know, because what do we, I mean, what do we, uh, so I would say we initiate. I mean, a Hasidic philosophy, there's an interesting concept that says that the first Rosh Hashanah was when God created Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. So Hashem and God initiated. Right. But after that, we must be the initiators because that's the relationship. Yeah. And, uh, but I wouldn't be worried. You initiate, God will respond. He, he's got everything he needs, so uh, I'm not worried about him. I'm more worried about us, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people not, not, not out there initiating. I think what might get in the way, we talked about guilt earlier, is, uh, is maybe guilt for someone who wants to change but feel guilty about what that comes along with. And um, I heard this thought that guilt is better than resentment. So I always, had gu- I always thought about guilt as something that is maybe more positive but maybe in relation to resentment like it's better to feel guilty and and uh either do, do whatever it is that you need to do than to let the resentment fester so if guilt is better than resentment what's better than guilt like how are we moving up upwards Let, let's put it in very uh in very poignant terms okay is a human being fundamentally a good person and we have an evil inclination and temptations or are we fundamentally bad people and from time to time, we have good inclinations. This is a fundamental question of psychology and a philosophy. To be honest, in the Western world, the prevalent secular view, what I like to call the Darwinian Freudian model, is they were essentially animals, evolved animals. And we've matured, we've evolved, so we have minds, and we create laws like red lights and green lights to coexist. But fundamentally, at heart, push comes to shove, everyone is in it for themselves. We're selfish creatures. And uh, many people say, yeah, that sounds right. So that's pretty much me. Not everyone likes to admit it, but what, what Freud calls the id, self, me, 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 pleasure. My pleasure comes first. But again, there's an ego and a superego that we impose simply to be able to coexist. And it's also my interest to coexist with you because if, if I can kill you, you can kill me. I mean, right. put it. But then there's a very different view, which is the Rosh Hashanah view. What happened on Rosh Hashanah? Why is it such a big day? It's the birthday of the collective birthday of the human race. And what does the Torah say? Very straightforward. The human being is God took a clump of earth and he instilled in it. He imbued it. He breathed into it the divine spirit. Neshama is breath. Neshama, Neshima means breath. So we are essentially created in the divine image. That's the description of the Torah in the Bible. Without, without any commentary, you were created in the divine image. So you are a piece of the divine. Then there's also challenges. We're tempted. We have another side called Yetzar Hara, the evil inclination, or the Nefesh Habami, the animal soul. But that's, that's superimposed. So when you think of these two views on a human being, you have it all figured out here. If we're essentially bad people, then of course we have plenty to be guilt- guilty because we're essentially bad, then that's that. But if you're essentially a divine image and has been covered up by dust, 
then then the, the most that guilt can do is clean off the dust, be accountable. That's why I I don't I personally don't like the word guilt to be honest. By me, resentment, guilt, they're all the 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 negative they're negative emotions that for me they evoke negativity. Um it doesn't again, I would use the word accountable. Yeah. Accountable means since you have such a beautiful soul, a divine soul, and you've somewhat, let's call it betrayed yourself. You've wandered away from what you're capable of. It's like telling your child you're so good at something and you haven't done it. So there's an element of correcting, repairing, improving. You hurt someone, you say, I'm sorry, thank you. So basically we're doing this revealing the essential good that we are. And then then words like resentment or guilt or or all the other stuff become, if anything, only a means. And the real focus is let's let's uh, uh, un- unleash the tremendous great potential we all have. That's the ultimate goal. And even if you need to do something to correct, it's only for the, that's a means to an end. Unfortunately, there's much out there that's very discipline-driven and creates all kinds of negative experiences. I mean, you just ask almost anyone, what's what memories from their school or from their childhood, they'll tell you all the nightmares of how they were made to feel like garbage, demoralized. Demoralization is the biggest crime of all. The Alter Rebbe says it in Tanya because it doesn't bring any positive results. Demoralized, what does it make you feel? You want to bury yourself in a basement and not talk to anyone. Motivation is the key. And that's how you know. If you have a negative feeling, let's say it's guilt or anything, ask yourself, what is it leading me to? If it leads you to isolate yourself and feel terrible, you know that itself is coming from the the bad place. If it makes you feel motivated, you know what? I really did something I should go do, fix it. Then you know it's coming from a good place. Really very straightforward in many ways. Um, How would you balance... Letting now that we've let go of the guilt and we're being accountable, how would you balance um, asking Hashem? Like Rosh Hashanah is a time when, when when we can ask Hashem for the pray for the things that we want, and that's very delicate because it could involve our egos. I want this. I want that. So at the same, like like you told us in the last one of the episodes that we did with you, that bittel is one of the key humility is one of the key ingredients in order to surrender and connect to Hashem. So how do we surrender to Hashem and at the same time we're asking Hashem for the things that we want in our life? Okay, good. Let's keep in mind that since Hashem created us and He created us with needs, He doesn't want us to forego those needs. He doesn't want you to punish yourself. Yes, there are days Yom Kippur we fast, but that's one day. We're not here in this world to deprive ourselves we're here to harness the material world, world towards spiritual ends, not to annihilate it or destroy it. But in Hasidic terminology, we know there's two steps. There's iskafia, that's refraining from giving in to every indulgence. I think we all know, we know that for ourselves and for our children, we always need some of that. That's called discipline. And then there's what's called ishapcha, transforming it. So refraining is like, you know, a person, let's say, overeating. You can't just transform it. You got to discipline yourself. But then there's the next step is transforming or harnessing anything that you had a negative impulse towards the positive direction. So when you think of it that way, it really goes hand in hand. The bittal part is basically saying you're not the center of the universe. You're here, you're part of, and you're here to serve something greater than yourself. 
That without that, there's no system in the world that can really function. Judaism, that's the foundation of it all. That you are here as part and blessed to be part of some bigger plan, and you were sent to this world to fulfill that plan. That to me is real bittel. What does bittel mean? It doesn't mean annihilation of self. It means focusing why you're here. That's number one. Number two, part of that is also using your resources, your mind, your emotions, your gifts, your opportunities, everything, including the material world, toward that direction. But you have to begin with the bittel first before you get to the second, because if you don't have that basic principle that I am here to serve, then what happens is we ultimately, ultimately become self-indulgent creatures. And I think that's how you, you combine the two. Uh, I think everything in life is that way, where you, you, you have to have some form of accountability we're talking about, and that's the bittel part, where we suspend ourselves for something greater, and then life changes entirely. Then everything you do becomes part of that bigger plan. But basically, it's not starting from your needs. It's starting from, from God's plan, basically. You know, that's what I, I always think of, especially Rosh Hashanah comes, you have to ask yourself, why is God have you here in this world right now? You know, that's the question Hashem asked uh, Adam on Rosh Hashanah. What did he say? After he had sinned, he said, where are you? Ayeka. He didn't know where he was. He was basically saying, where do you stand? Have you betrayed yourself? Are you living up to your calling, to your mission? So if I were to sum it up, I would say the message of the whole holiday season, but starting with Rosh Hashanah, is this is the day when you renew your contract of what your calling is. Ask, what is your mission in life? That is the single most important thing. Why am I here? And right. I think any intelligent person is not going to answer to eat and drink and make money and, be, uh, and, and enjoy life. Those are all beautiful things, but the most important thing is why am I here? You're on a calling, and that's, I think, the greatest gift a person could have. So what You if can someone, disagree, by the way, if you like. I know what she's going to go, go, yeah. Are you going to ask, that? what if someone you're, doesn't know what their calling is? Something like that, yeah. but also... You, you, you read each other's minds. <laughs> <So, yeah. laughs> well, we, we talk a lot when we prepare. I, I understand, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, what if they don't know what their calling is? Perhaps because, let's say someone's moving toward their mission, they see something that they think they can accomplish in the world, but that comes with its share of um, hardships. And we know that Hashem wants us to be besimcha. And if he, if we were actually, um, you know, we're commanded to be besimcha. And so I, w I wonder how we balance this being besimcha, joyful, with fulfilling our mission when maybe there's conflict sometimes in fulfilling our mission, when it, if it involves pain. As you probably know, I worked for the Rebbe many years, for the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Uh, my job was to remember the Fabringans and then write them down. So How I many years did you, do, did you do that for? We discussed this on the other episode, yeah, but for I, our new I, listeners. No, no, I understand. Um, I did it from 1977 till 1992 when the Rebbe had a stroke. So that would be um, many 12, years. 15 years, a little more than 15 years. So I had the privilege to uh, access to the Rebbe asked many questions. So I remember it was one year Simcha's Torah, and the Rebbe had spelled out seven different steps of how you get to joy. And one of the things he said, the first I think it was, the mere fact that you were chosen by God to be on this earth for a purpose is the biggest Simcha of all. Because he chose you, he didn't choose someone else. It's like a big schus, imagine the greatest king, and here you're talking about God himself, chose you and to be here today. 
he could have, you could have been born a thousand years ago, you know, but you're here. So that is itself a tremendous source of joy. Uh, I found, without going into the others right now, I found that to be tremendously enlightening because, and empowering, because it tells you that the first step is of recognizing that simcha, that you were chosen. And when a person comes and says, oh, look how bad I am, or look what I've done, they're basically undermining, it's like saying, you're throwing the gift back and saying, God says, but I put you here. You don't begin by first complaining what's not working. The first thing is that you're here for a purpose. Now, part of that purpose is could include that maybe am I not living up to it? And that's where, let's say, guilt may come in or other feelings. So then fine. So the next step is figure out what you've done right, what you've done wrong. I would always tell people, you know, make a, a column. It's a good pre-Rosh Hashan exercise. And write down the things that you feel that you've done right in this past year to live up to. You know, if you're standing before Hashem and he says, okay, give me a report, what'd you do? You know, give me a uh, evaluation, a, a report, essentially. So what did you accomplish? And then in the second column, you can write the things that you think you didn't do well enough and you make the resolution to improve it. I know it sounds simplistic what I'm saying. And I do know that these inner feelings of, of guilt or shame or other things are very deep. They're not rational. I'm speaking rationally here. Right. I understand when I sit with someone and someone says, you know, it's all beautiful, but I still feel terrible inside. And I know it's an emotional thing. So what you try to do is cognitively, you try to first explain to a person, this is already a psychological, I mean, we all know psychological issues are, are mostly emotional. But if I think we, she, we, was, we, she was talking more about, the, we, uh, more about the emotion of actual pain or like not feeling joyful. Yeah, no, no, I was going to yeah. get to that. But I wanted to first begin yeah. with a mindset. Right. So I would say to anyone, no matter what you've gone through in this past year, and even if it's painful experiences, and even legitimate painful, I'm not talking about illusions, you know, really legitimate. Okay, Rosh Hashanah, you mentioned before from the Alter Rebbe, from Tanya, a new energy enters. You want to benefit from it. You don't want to just bring your past painful experience and say, no, I can't get this new gift you're giving me of the new year because I'm not ready for it. So I think you have to, as much as possible, like so-called almost um, like empty your mind in a way and say, I'm going to Rosh Hashanah. Let me at least Rosh Hashanah try to go, if I'm going to Shul, great, if, or, or if I'm home, try to be in a place where I'm receiving something new. Because if Hashem sends you, let's say, a special guest to your, to your table, and you say to the guest, you know, I have no time for guests, you're basically saying no to a gift. So Rosh Hashanah is coming, it's like a new guest with new energy, new possibilities, and you're saying, I can't deal with it because I have too much pain from the past. That would be not really, uh, I think that would not, I think we all agree that would not be what you want to do. So I would say find some way to be open at least. And if you don't feel that you're open, Maybe that's what you should pray for. Say to Hashem, please give me something that I can feel a little freer. But I understand if someone doesn't feel free, it's not that easy. I don't know if I have a magic pill, honestly. If a person's going into Rosh Hashanah and they are really dealing with something of real grief or pain, I, I don't know if I have those words that I could say, you know, you can get rid of it. All you can say is, here's a special day is coming. Let's try our best to, to, to be a little happier and open us ourselves up to do the best you can, even if it's not perfect. Because you also don't want to create a new level of guilt. You're guilty over the fact that you can't bring yourself <laughs> to be joyous, joyful. So I would just do whatever is possible. That's why I think it's good sometimes to have distractions. You have a meal coming, you have fr your friends coming over, guests. Sometimes it's good to, to get out of your own 
bad mood, so to speak. You know, you, you, sometimes you want to stay in your room. You don't want to come out of your room. And sometimes it's, no one can force you. Sometimes you have to force yourself. You know, you have to, what do they say, fake until you make it. Yeah. But I don't call it fake because if the neshama is indeed really enjoyful. Right. But there's the, let's call it the arteries are right. blocked. Right. So you are accessing who you are. You, you're behaving the way you should be. Yeah, like act the way and, you want to feel. Exactly. Right. And then ultimately it will happen. Right. Fake you know? it till we feel what it really is. Yeah. Like the truth, I guess you're saying. Or act the way you want to feel because then. Uh, I have to share, I just saw this recently, how, what kind of chemicals are released when you smile. When you physically smile, even if it's a fake smile, the, when, the, when the mouth goes into that type of shape, it releases certain happy chemicals, what they call yeah. whatever, the dopamine or whatever the other stuff. That, yeah. So there is an element of, of even external joy that can actually, um, what they call the, you know, how your, they call them, how your neurons are fired, that's how they get wires. Yeah. So I, I, I was reading this little anecdote of a farm boy who was, um, he never had seen a big city. And one day he's with his family, they go travel to one of their relatives and they come to this big mansion. And the first thing he sees when he walks in, something he never saw before, a mirror. A mirror, he didn't even know what it was. And he looks in the mirror and he starts yelling. And the host comes over and says, why are you yelling? He says, there's a boy in the mirror that's making uh, funny faces at me, <laughs> you know? So the host tells him, smile to him and he'll smile back. You know, he didn't realize it was himself. So sometimes that's how it works. When you smile, you get a smile back. It's actually a Zohar that says that, that when you smile. Kamayim alpanim Yeah, kamayim alpanim alpanim, exactly. And uh, I'll just share another anecdote since Erev Rosh Hashanah Hashanah is also the the birthday of the Tzamech Tzedek. Um, So so Tzamech Tzedek, the last Shabbos that the Alter Rebbe, his grandfather was in this world. He was already very sick. So Shabbos was ending. He would pass away that Saturday night. Chavdalatevis, uh, it was. And his grandson, the Samach Tzedek, writes this in a letter. And he was um, davening for the Ahmed. He was leading the prayer, the evening Shabbos service, Mayrif. And he was very sad. So he was crying. His grandfather called him over after davening. He waited, called him over, and said to him, I heard from my Rebbe, the Maggot of Mizrich, that the face you show up to heaven is the face they will show you down below. So if you show a smiling face, you'll get a smile back. If you show a sad face, you'll get sadness back. Well, we're very into that, actually. And this this may have been the last thing the Alter Rebbe ever said. Because within the the hour, he made Avdallah, and then was this Talkus, he passed away. But Samach Tzaddik writes this. I use this a lot. Right. And he explains it. He explains the whole thing about reflection, projection, that the, so it's not faking it because the truth is your nesham is always besimcha. Well, it's except, also that words come from the heart and to the heart. Exactly, so, exactly. So, you know, it's also that if we smile to Hashem, if we pray to Hashem. And, with and I think we have to stop getting, we have to get out of the juvenile attitude that Roshana comes and magic is going to happen. Right. You, know, you have to bring yourself to it. The more you bring it, listen, again, Hashem can do anything. He can make a miracle, make you smile, even if you're not in the mood. But the more you can bring yourself with your effort, the more you'll get in return. Right. And, and it's not easy. I, I'm not going to say here, sit here and say that if a person is really dealing with a challenging situation, it's just automatic. It's, it's work. It's work. Right. Right. But, like but you have to always remember, we say every morning, you know, we every day, we thank God for returning my soul to me. Someone asked me, I don't, I'm not happy that my soul came back. 
I'm very depressed. I'd rather not been, not woke up with that. Some people tell me they don't want to wake up sometimes. So why would I say Modani? I said, because God is telling you that you have something stronger than your melancholy is your neshama. Acknowledge it. It's, it's a gift. It's like the light is stronger than your darkness. But you have to talk about bittel. Sometimes bittel means also putting aside your negative feelings and allowing and realizing there's a bigger picture here. Well, I think that's a very positive way to look at it, like letting go of the guilt and being accountable, and then also smiling to Hashem, being sincere, and we'll get the smile back. It's actually a positive twist to Rosh Hashanah. Instead of looking at it as guilty, we're coming in with a, with a positive attitude of a new opportunity, um, this new light that we're, we're trying to tap into. And Well said, beautiful, yeah. Um, to ask you, when we say Teshuvah, Tefillah, Tzedakah, Mavirin, Esroah, Hagzera, when we do Teshuvah, Tefillah, Tzedakah, we can change an evil decree. Um, Hashem, well, this is kind of a free will question. Hashem already knows what's going to happen and, and what's going to be. Can Is it really possible for us to change that? Obviously, yes, because it says that in the Siddur. But what, what do we have to do to actually make that change? So as a good Jew, I'll answer a question with a question. <laughs> what does Xerah mean altogether? Like, why is God making these bad decrees that we need to uh, abolish them and uh, get rid of them? What is this thing about the decrees? Which goes back to the attitude that so many of us have, that Rosh Hashanah is like almost a day of punishment, a day of judgment, a day we should be trembling because we're standing before the Almighty Judge. You know, so I want to begin by saying this. There's a, it's not just a Hasidic concept. Uh, the Tur, who's one of the great codifiers of Jewish law. So he writes, why do Jews wear white in the holidays? Like we wear kittel and other white clothing. And he says, because when you go into judgment, we know that the guilty party would wear dark, black. And only if you were innocent, you wore white. Here, we didn't even begin judgment day, we're already wearing white. So you know, this is what he says. He says, because the Jewish people are a unique nation. They know God's personality. That's what he says. They know God's personality. And they know absolutely that God loves them. And they know for sure they're going to be innocent before Judgment Day. And so they come in with wearing white. They're confident. So we're manifesting. Yeah. <laughs> so so then the question, of course, is to what means this Xeris? Mm-hmm. Why are we abolishing decrees? And why are we saying doing tshuva? And so on. And the answer goes back to what we spoke about before. God is not some principal in the school that's punishing students. He's not getting even with us. This isn't retribution. This isn't vengeance. This isn't a a punitive. This is a loving relationship. Love demands expectations. It demands certain standards. Who do you ask to be accountable? You're never gonna ask, God forbid, someone who's handicapped or someone who's incapable to be accountable for something they're not capable of doing. You're not going to ask your one-year-old to be accountable for something a one-year-old can't be. Right. You ask people to be accountable for the ones you love and the ones you trust, and you expect from them to live up to the highest standards. So the real, tra- if I were to translate all these prayer books, I would change all the words. Xera, I would never translate as a harsh decree. I would translate it as a, uh, a schism in a relationship, because Xera means a schism also, a split, a dissonance. What do you think Avera means? Sin. So most people talk sin, transgression, you know, and they, Avera comes from the word Havara. It's, we'll call it psychologically dissonance. It's called misalignment. When you do something that you shouldn't have done, you misalign yourself with your own purpose. When you and your spouse in some way have hurt each other, you create a misalignment. And a mitzvah comes from the word connection. 
You're reconnecting. What is tshuva? Return. Tshuva is not repentance. You're returning back to your natural state. I think that a lot of the Hebrew words have been mistranslated, and they've created a new stereotype of myths. That's why religion is associated so often with negative things. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of a man called Woody Allen. But, sure, yes. Uh, yeah, look at any Woody Allen movie. Look at the cynical and the sarcastic view on Judaism. I mean, I can give you a whole list of all the anti-religious jokes, but basically religion is associated either with nonsense, superstition, or all kinds of fears and neurosis. That's what it's associated with. Uh, I mean, I would like to think, and I believe part of this, the goal of your program is to introduce people to realize that Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Judaism has a soul to it also. It's not just the mechanics of, uh, of banging your chest and doing tshuva. It's a relationship that you're building with God. So when you think of it that way, then you say, okay, if it's a relationship with God, what is this gzera here? And why? And what is this idea that when we do something, there is reward and punishment? So even reward and punishment, the Shalosh says, he says that reward and punishment is cause and effect. When a person puts their hand in fire, you don't say the fire is punishing you. It's the cause and effect, the natural cause and effect. If you hurt someone, in effect, it's also hurting yourself. So Xerus, Golos, all these things we call punishments are cause and effect. But the Jews were had sinaschinam, unfortunately. They had baseless hatred for each other. So Hashem said, I can't be among my children that are fighting. I can't come to a house where my children are fighting with each other. It's not like God's punishing us. It's, it's, it's cause and effect. And you want me back, love each other. Unite with each other. So I, if you look at it that way, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur really are tools of how to reconnect. And I should add this. I think this is a big part of my book, 60 Days. People don't realize that the whole story of the Jewish calendar is really a narrative. The Jews leave Egypt. 49, 50 days later, they receive the Torah. 39 days later, they build a golden calf. Moses, Moshe, breaks the tablets, goes back to God for, begging for forgiveness. 40 days, and then another 40 days. So 80 days later, basically 120 days from Matan Torah and 170 days from when they left Egypt is Yom Kippur. Why is it the holiest day of the year? Because Moshe Rabbeinu basically gained, regained a reconciliation and forgiveness after the Jews had betrayed God. So essentially what you have is the story of love, betrayal, and reconciliation. It's the whole story of Judaism. So when you think of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, where's Moshe Rabbeinu right now on the mountain trying to rebuild, rebuild a relationship that was severed in some way? So that's Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. You're, we're rebuilding a, a connection. Many of us have wandered off. Either we become too materialistic or distracted or maybe did things worse than that. Everybody has their list. But, that, but this is an opportunity to reclaim and regain and revisit and say, but the love of God and the people is so deep, no matter what happened, we can, if we're accountable and we do our part, we can rejoin. So I see Xera in that, that context. Xera is one of the things that can create a severing and, uh, and unfortunately has taken, can take the shape of a Holocaust. It can take the shape of terrible things. But at the end of the day, these are all uh, uh, effects, consequences of a disconnect between us and God. So the only solution is to reconnect. And that's why tshuva, tefillah, tzedakah are the way that those are all connectors. Returning, tefillah, praying, and tzedakah. So 
I mean, I, I, sometimes I, listen, you see someone. We're all, we're all yeshiva yeah, educated people. I know. People. I mean, this maybe is we the, need a new. Uh, <laughs> no, I, honestly, I didn't learn most of this in yeshiva. To be right. very honest, I know this despite my yeshiva upbringing. I learned it in Hasidus. I learned it in the Pnimis and the Neshama of Torah. Because you start seeing, then then it makes sense. It never made sense to me the idea of God being this angry guy sitting on a throne in heaven waiting to strike us with lightning while we misbehave. Right. It's like, you know, I asked you how yeah. irreverent I could be. But when it comes, when I hear yeah. that stuff, it's actually I'm repulsed by it today. Because right. I know that it's so, first of all, it's false. And I know how distorting it is. I, I personally know people today that will not go to Shani Yom Kippur to Shul because of how much toxic toxicity and how much trauma they experience due to a negative religion. I know a guy that told me, Rosh Hashanah for me was my father literally p- punching me and beating me, why I'm not davening and why I'm not, that's all Rosh Hashanah was for me. So why would I want to go to a shul that just reminds me of an abusive father who was abusive regardless of the holiday. He just used it as, as an excuse. I mean, I, I don't like to repeat nightmare stories, but right. and it gets worse yeah. than that, as you can imagine. <laughs> so assuming that a problem, so I think it's the Einstein quote, a problem can't be solved from the same place it was created. Yeah. So how would you apply this to the example that you shared about this person who's, you know, he, he doesn't want to have anything to do with Shul or Rosh Hashanah because of his upbringing? How do you solve that? I'll tell it to you exactly the way. Sometimes you have to lose God before you find God. If something became toxic, if Shabbos became toxic, as beautiful as Shabbos is, but because it become like, you know, like, like God forbid cancer kills healthy cells too. So sometimes a person has to, what the Gemara says, the Talmud says, that sometimes you have to break a Shabbos in order to keep. So I would never tell anyone, don't do Shabbos, but I would definitely tell them, you need to get rid of the toxic stuff and then reclaim it and regain it. I'll give you, I'll tell you a story that happened. Um, I do. A, I have a program every Sunday night. It's called My Life Because It Is Applied. It's very popular. Yeah. People send in questions, anonymous, of all sorts, just taboo questions, things that are yeah. mind-boggling sometimes. And this is online. Yeah. It's also a podcast, it's also, actually. It's a podcast yeah, and we'll it's a video. It in the notes. Every yeah. Sunday I do yeah. it. And doing it over 10 years, very, very popular. You know, I have like over probably 10, 12,000 viewers every week. It's, uh, but And I... So I get all kinds of questions. I want it to be anonymous. I'm not, I, don't, I don't need to know who it is. So I got a letter from one guy, an email, who says, I feel finally the courage. I'm married now uh, 13 years. I never told this to anyone. I'm saying it to you. I, I hate Shabbos. I'm married. My wife uh, keeps Shabbos. We have children. I don't tell anyone. They don't know. But I hate Shabbos. And the reason I hate Shabbos is because Shabbos was my biggest nightmare. My father who was a very angry man, couldn't wait till Friday night to humiliate me by asking me, what did I learn that week? And he would always show me how I know nothing, how ignorant. He used me as a punching bag. He says, I was, I was so terrified of Shabbos that even Sunday I began to tremble because I know six days of Shabbos. That was Shabbos for him. I said, I got married, I put on a good show, but I mamish, for me Shabbos is an ordeal. And he says, do you mind talking about it? And I did. And I obviously I didn't know who it was. And I said, my opinion, you should share with your wife. Why shouldn't you? She should know. And maybe together you can find creative ways. Maybe you have to create a new type of Shabbos for yourself. Because your Shabbos has been basically hijacked by an abusive father. You know, and that's what he began doing. He told his wife, you know, he shared this with me. 
And they began doing creative ideas, like, you know, a project with their children. They turned Shabbos into a, a whole new experience. So that's my answer to anyone. Anyone who's experienced anything that's negative, but they really want to preserve some of the original, they have to find a way to do it. I mean, for someone like Rosh Hashanah Kippur that can't go to shul because of these reasons, I would say stay home, find maybe a book, maybe 60 Days or some other book yeah. that inspires you, and, and do something that will lift, lift up your spirit. God will hear your prayer wherever you are. I wouldn't f- tell anyone to force themselves to do something that hurt them because it's, it's gonna backfire. So you have to find ways, original creative ways of how to reclaim that experience. This is a big challenge a lot of people have. Now, many don't admit it. They don't even talk about it, but many do. And, uh, and that, to me, that's the only way. The only way is to turn it into a personally beautiful experience. Now, I, I have a line I take from Shulchan Aruch. It says, better to say one meaningful, heartfelt prayer on Yom Kippur than read the whole machzah. That's what the Alter Rebbe says. Because, you know, it's, let's be honest. You know what a machzah is, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm saying it to your audience. Yeah. It's a book, book this size, and some machzahs are this size. You tell me, can anyone read a book like this in a day? Here we're asked in a day. Somehow we Kippur. manage. <laughs> Why? Because most of us don't know what we're reading. And we rely that God understands the words. Even if you read the English, frankly, it's quite cryptic. I don't know if you ever tried. And yeah. it's, a lot of it seems repetitive. And I just, I mean, I, I ask myself, so, so, okay, so we rely on say the words and Hashem will carry the words to heaven and everything will be fine. So I always tell people, what stops you from taking one prayer, Shema? this prayer, that prayer, and work on it. Pray for an hour with one line. And the chazan is already taking care of the rest. So it's not like, and people say, I can do that. I don't have to say every word. You know, to me, it's not, I mean, no, you don't have to say every word. That's why you have a chazan. I would rather that be meaningful one line than, than a thousand lines that are meaningless. So you have to give people a little license and also a little lightness of spirit that it's a day that you're speaking to God. You think he doesn't know who you are? He knows who you are. It's not, he's, didn't, he's not saying, I have only one way to do it. Find the right kavana. He wants your heart. He wants you to, and, and if it's coming from a sincere place, I'm not going here, I'm not advocating, let's write a new shulchan aruch and let's change the prayers. The prayers are, are sacred, but it's like music. I'll use an example. Someone's you're teaching song music and they can't play the whole, the whole symphony. So tell them, play one or two pages. If you say, if you don't play it all, you, you failed? No. It's, it's, a, it's a symphony. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is a big symphony right. that goes on for hours. So play, play a few lines, you know, speak from your heart, and, you, and every year you grow. But even that attitude is already freeing for many. Because, you, you know, it's, it's not about that burden. If I don't say every prayer, some people think, that's it. I'm not going to be describing the book of life, and who knows what's going to happen next. I mean, that's what happened. And You're saying feel, it's about the connection. A thousand percent. Sure. What's the co- you know, let me ask you, we're, 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 thank God we all, many people I'm sure listening are happily married. Your, your, your relationship with your husband or with your wife, you think it's built on the grocery list of things that you do? There's a connection that you have. And then automatically you do the other details and sometimes you don't do them perfectly. Right. But if the connection is not there, you're just gonna, you know, imagine your husband coming and saying, listen, here's a list of 20 things. If you don't do it, our relationship is gonna be severed. That's not a relationship's work. The relationship is there, and they're automatically, then there are things we do, you know? Right, right. A relationship that's built on changing light bulbs, or not squeezing the toothpaste from the middle of the tube, only on that, I, I don't know how much, uh, you know, I'm just using right. that as well, an example. Yeah. I hope that doesn't... Uh, 
No, no, no. Uh, it, 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 uh, it makes a perfect example. sense. I mean, we're always trying to get to the heart of an issue. And you've addressed so many complicated questions, I'm sure. Is there one that shows up quite a bit? You're like, why can't we just get this already? Is there, is there a question or an, uh, an issue that's addressed, in your opinion, that we just need to wake up to? I've trained myself not to judge anyone. I have no judgmentalism in me. So so when I hear somebody say something, even if I find it to be um, narcissistic, let's say, right. or exhibiting other problems they may have, I try to look deeper to see what I can say that will help the person. But there's sometimes I hear things that are like, they're almost repulsive to me. Um, but I avoid judging right. because I don't know what's going on. Yeah. And what about the redundancy? You know, so there's no, I mean, there is tremendous selfishness in many people that you hear where they focus completely on themselves and they blame everything on everyone else and they don't even know it, you know, and, uh, and, and they feel very sad for them. So I try to find is there some opening somewhere, you know, because I, I, it's hard for me to give up on anyone. You know, I am, I'm, I'm a royal optimist, so I always feel... What do they call it? A suffering optimist, yeah. You feel uh, like always, there's always hope. Yeah, because there's a neshama. That's why I'm. I, that's how I'm trained. That's how I think. I think about the neshama, and if I give up hope, then it's giving up on God. God created someone, but I sometimes see things that are very people are self-destructive. I would think. That, and I would say selfishness is the most destructive. Oh, very, thing. very selfishness. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's the root of all the problems, because to me, selfishness is a symptom. Mm-hmm. It's a symptom usually of insecurity. Right. And and insecurity. So then you, the only way to to cover up in your insecurity or to feel secure, you feel you need control, and you and and you blame others. Obviously, everything goes back to childhood very often. I mean, everything, almost everything. Uh, a very you know a, a dysfunctional childhood, where parents who are very either very um, judgmental, very uh, demanding, controlling, is going to have an impact on a child much deeper than we ever know. So. It's important to recognize that. And that's something you can't just rewire easily. You can't just say, okay, let's go back to your five-year-old experiences and say, we'll change something. So the challenge is, I mean, Frederick Douglass said something. He was a, uh, he was a interesting thinker. He said, it's infinitely easy. I may be paraphrasing. It's infinitely easier to bring up a healthy child than to fix a broken right. adult. Right. I see this every day because I deal with many broken adults. And I say to myself sometimes, imagine if the child was brought up properly, how much that would prevent and preempt money, energy, pain, grief. It's like mind-boggling to me. And that's when I learned to appreciate a lot of what the Torah says about chinuch and about the Rebbe's emphasis on children, children. Because you do the right thing for children, you can't imagine. It's, it, it, the infinite implications of that are beyond. Are, and when you don't, I mean, how much money is being spent right now on medications, mm-hmm. on on, uh, on antidepressants, on psych- whatever it is that people are trying to find some relief? So I, you know, to me, Rosh Hashanah, especially for parents, it's all about make sure those children have beautiful experiences because whatever you plant now is going to be forever. And we want to preempt many things. But then, of course, we're dealing with adults. So it's a vicious cycle because the adults are controlling the exactly. children. Exactly. Yeah. So what do we do then? Right. Um, so I, I, so I'm going back. Your question is a very, very good question. It's a, you know, what I see, insecurity, a very, very big one, and then of course the it's ultimately MS and integrity and honesty and sincerity that is the, the best, uh, our best hope. If a person does not have that, they can be as smart as 
you want, but they don't have honesty. And the smarter they are, the more they cover up their tracks. Right. And their dishonesty uses their smartness against them. Are you saying so, the antidote? What are you you're yeah, saying? I'm that, saying uh, MS, to be honest. No, but you're saying in relation to someone being insecure yeah, or selfish? Or secure, selfish, or anything that this person's plagued by. Mm -hmm. The first thing is honesty. Right, the first thing is to be honest. Because if you're not honest, then what do you work with? There's no one to work with. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I'm sitting so often with couples, and I see, you know, I, I read it pretty quickly, the situation, and I see one of them is just not honest. And I don't see honest that they're maliciously lying. They don't. They don't even have the capacity to acknowledge a problem, so that you know. So they know how to hide it, but you see right away. And where do you do with it? Where do you go with that? But you know, that you wrote. Makes... You wrote in your one of the days of your book. It I think it was the Rebbe that said, "There's nothing as whole as a broken yeah. heart." Yeah. So some of these people are very broken, and but yet you say there's nothing as whole as a broken heart. So how would you explain that? Well, listen. If a person knows they have a broken heart, that's good. But if they don't know it and they feel they have a complete heart, and right. they think, like, I, I've had people who I see are broken, and they say to me, I'm perfectly fine. My wife is the problem. Or this one's the problem. That one's the problem. It's like neurosis. Um, neurosis broken is heart idea. means, really, that you feel it, that you right. feel um, a, what call, hitting rock, rock bottom, that you feel it's something inadequate, feeling something is missing. Let's be honest. When people are in their comfort zone, completely in their comfort zone, that's the place where most of them will never change. When you're at your happiest, and everyone should be happy, don't get me wrong, it's the time when you don't usually, it's when there's a crack, when something is wrong, that's when you start thinking. Why, don't, why can't we change when we're happy? <laughs> you're asking, Rivka, the greatest million-dollar question. I wish it was different. We have I Simchas Tara. Is that, is that a call? We have uh, Sukkot and Simchas Tara. Is that a call for change? Yeah, no, I think real happiness can bring change. Mm -hmm. But when we're comfortable, that's maybe right. the right word. I don't know if happy is right. the right word. When we're comfortable, you know, yeah. I'm comfortable. Leave me alone. I'm comfortable, you know. I remember during COVID, you said your program began around COVID time. Yeah. During COVID, one of the things, one of the blessings in the skies was people's comfort zones were disrupted. Mm -hmm. The security blankets were taken away. So you couldn't hide. Oh, I'm going out to a restaurant tonight. Or tomorrow I'm going to a game. Or I'm traveling. All that stopped. So now you're left like naked and you can't run to all your... So I, I saw that that was actually for many people terrible, but for many people it was great because it's like uh, Warren Buffett put it. He said, until the tide is out, you don't know who's been swimming naked. You know? That's right. Because when the tide is in, everybody is, is, is on top of the yeah, world. Right. And so it's good to be vulnerable at times and, uh, and, and, and feel, what can I do to, to be better? When you're very, very comfortable, listen, I'm all for comfort. I, I like comfort. Who doesn't like comfort zones? But it's not usually the motivator for great growth. And that's no. what it means when you're saying that, yeah. that when the Rebbe says there's nothing as whole as a broken. Yeah, 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 for sure. And it's also the brokenness. It makes you feel feel that you need more. And, uh, and again, I think brokenness, we're not here talking about, God forbid, wishing anyone trauma or grief. Talking about a brokenness where you feel you're not complete. You know, interesting, during the 10 days of tshuva, the Arizal says that if someone doesn't cry during the 10 days of tshuva, their heart is not complete. Same idea. Their soul is not complete, I'm sorry. Their soul is not complete. Because the crying is like, sometimes it's just an existential loneliness of crying. We're not talking about crying over particular loss. We're talking about just sensing that there's more. I remember the Rebbe crying simply because Mashiach didn't come yet. Not because there was a tragedy. 
just the idea that, you know, Hashem is not present, the life is not the way it should be, that uh, there are people that are hurting, even if you're not. It's a sensitivity that we are not yet in a perfect world. And those that are sensitive have a broken heart over it. So that's a good thing. It's empathy. It's called empathy. Right. And I also think there, there's this Carl Jung um, quote that neurosis is always a substitute for legitimate suffering because we're unwilling to go through the suffering that, that's necessary in order to grow. And so then we develop all, we, we build these narratives that are often not true, like we're moving far away from our truth. And that's probably what's causing a lot of the host of mental health issues that we're experiencing today. So, For sure. And, and, and I, if I could add, if we're talking about that already, addiction of all sorts, whether it's physical or psychological or substance, or behavior, any any of it, is essentially uh, what they call uh, you call it a type of um, connection or a, a you know um, uh, attachment disorder. You're attached to the wrong thing. Right. We all need attachment. Nine months we spend in our mother's womb, early age, age, early childhood, the, the nurturing, the care of parents. We need attachments, and if we don't have it, we're going to find it elsewhere, and then we get attached to the wrong thing. You almost can't get detached because you must have attachment. Essentially, a drug becomes like your mother, for lack of another way of putting it. And I think that's why in Hebrew, ava, love, and echad, same gematria, 13, because they because love something and being connected with something. It's all about connection. And disconnection. We talked about connection, disconnection. It's really the story of, of the whole story. They, brought, they built the golden calf, and Moshe breaks the tablets, breaking and then repairing. Breaking and repairing is all about disconnection, dissonance, and repair. Or in the words of Kabbalah Hasidus, the shattering of the containers, and tikkun, the repair of the containers. We're here to bring it all together. Yeah. I always feel that visual to me is very, very empowering, the idea that every time you talk to someone, you have the ability to mend, like, you know, to break to bring together fragments that may have split and every time you show love, you're doing another little mending. And, all, and cumulatively, it's like connecting the whole world into That's one nice. seamless uh, tapestry, so to speak. Right. It's right. a very good way to look at life. And really, you have two options. You're either going to mend or you're going to split. There's nothing in between? Yeah, in between. It's like you say, either you're part <laughs> of the problem or you're part of the solution. Right. I was going to ask you so that. Is there, is there, sorry, finish your no, line. That, no, there's, the, there's this the joke they say about the guy. They asked him, uh, he used to say, he said, I used to think I'm indecisive. Now I'm not so sure, you know? <laughs> In other words, right. to be on the fence, right. I would say is part of the problem. Right. Because we need, you know, you're either climbing and you're doing something to just stand on the side right. is not. Uh, so you said problem and solution. Was the world you know, we have we have problems. Is there a solution to every problem? Did Hashem create the world that there are solutions for every problem that we can we can fix? I love that question. And it's a very good question. I must say yes. However, it's not always uh, the, the the solution sometimes is surprising. Right. It's not always what we thought it is, you know. Right, but there is Absolutely. First of all, let's I'll quote the Talmud. And I like the answer yes. <laughs> the answer is yes, hundred percent. That's hopeful. <laughs> Absolutely. Because there's one God. You know, we do not believe that there's a God and a devil who have equal powers. So if there's one God, it's like I, I met a woman who lost her husband at a young age. She had little children. And she wrote to me, and then I asked her about it. She said, at the end, all will be good. 
If it's not good, it means it's not the end. So the fact that we believe in Mashiach means we absolutely believe that the end is going to be good. So that is the, everything will be repaired. Question is how long it's going to take. Um, and I'll say this. Um, so to me, it comes down to uh, understanding again, what is the essence of life? The Talmud says that magdim that he precedes every illness with a cure. Mm-hmm. So you have your answer. That's where the answer. That's the where cure it, precedes the illness. Right. That means not only is there a cure, but the cure was there before the illness, or else you couldn't have had the illness. Right. I'll share another anecdote that brings to mind. Now we're, you know we're on a roll here. Yeah. <laughs> you like anecdotes? I love yeah, it. Yeah, we love them. That makes it relatable. You do a lot of that in this book. Yeah. yeah. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok, the Friedrich Rebbe. So he went to Israel. He he, he visited Israel in 1929. He's, a few months he spent. On his way out, he was on a boat toward Alexa- through Alexandria in Egypt. And when on the boat, they got a telegram that there was the pogrom in Hebron. 1921 was uh, 29. There was a big pogrom. I think over 80 people were massacred. It's a famous, uh, when the Friedrich Rebbe heard that, he had a, an attack. I think his kidneys failed. He had such aggravation over it. And he was in danger. You're on a boat. It's not like... But there was a Dr. Volach was his name. I think he was the head of Hadassah Hospital. And he was on the boat. So he administered to the Rebbe and it got him out of danger. Listen to this, this amazing story to me. The doctor comes to the Rebbe afterwards and says, I want to ask you for forgiveness. So the Rebbe says, forgiveness? You saved my life. Why would you ask for forgiveness? He said, because Hashem does not send an illness unless there's a cure. If I was not on the boat, you would never have become sick to that point. But because there was a doctor wow. on the boat, so Hashem allowed that to happen. Wow. And I had not been here. You know, That's this, the way This is a doctor's, this is called bedside manner. I just found it to be wow. really unbelievable. <laughs> In other words. You felt if he wasn't there, he was the cure. And if he wasn't yeah, there. if he wasn't there, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I mean, just interesting yeah. twist on it. But the point is. Yeah, yeah, we have to but believe. But that's not only referring to illness, anything. I'm saying yeah, there's yeah, a shidduch crisis, there's problems in the world, there's a sol- there's cancer. There's Look, you could always ask the question, so then what about all the prayers we pray, you say to him, and a child, Rahman al dies anyway. I mean, I don't want to mention that, but you know. And so where was the solution? So that's why I said we don't always know, because we don't know God's ways. And we don't know the future, and we don't know the bigger plan. But uh, but to take an attitude where a person says, you know, I'm hopeless. For me, it's over. I will never get married or I'm suffering. That's my destiny. I, I, it, it goes against everything I believe in Judaism. Judaism says you have a neshama. Yeah, there's a God that watches over you. I don't care what happened yesterday or two days ago. You're not smarter than God. You can't predict what will be. You know, that's the whole point. If, if God is to be God... We don't tell God what to do. He tells us what to do. And, and you have to accept that. I'm not, I'm not here to tell anyone they have to accept God. But if it means anything, it means that you're ready to subject yourself, that there's a, there's a boss, you know. There's, there's somebody that's, that tells us what is going to happen. Um, Let's say in a global way, like, for example, um, the world today, social media, it's a good thing. For example, the, the teachings that you share, um, it, it has also become a very detrimental thing. Yeah. And you wonder, is there a solution to this? I'm saying, for example, a global issue. So I guess each one individually can do our part. 
But you wonder, with many global issues, is there, did Hashem give us a solution to work on? And the answer is absolutely yes. The examples you gave are, uh, frankly, I think, easier to explain. Because it's like I have in my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, when a, a little girl asked the Rebbe, is atomic energy, that was the big thing then, is atomic energy a positive or a negative? And the Rebbe said to her, is a kitchen knife a good thing or a bad thing? If you use it to cut food, cut a challah, it's good. If you use it, God forbid, to hurt someone, it's bad. In other words, there are things in this world that we call klipas neuga in the language right. of chassidus that are neutral. So technology is neutral. Technology is not good or bad, just as science is not. The Nazi scientists use it to kill people. There are others that use it to help save lives. So that is our choice. And that's the partnership God made with us. I'll give you resources. I'll give you gold. You can build with gold a temple, a Beis Amigdash, or you can build with gold, golden temples of golden calves and worship money and worship materialism. And that's our choice. Um, it's more complicated when you get to things that are like natural disasters or where you see a person for no, you know, innocent person suddenly contracts some machlis, some illness. And, you know, that, and it's like, why? Why would this person have to suffer? Or the Holocaust, for that matter, six million Jews, one and a half million innocent children. That's where we have to put up our hands and say, we don't understand God's ways. I, I, we don't even go there. What are we going to say? You want to justify? So, but, but our attitude, look, I've been, thank God I've been blessed in my life. Yes, I had my father passed away 18 years ago, but more or less, I would say my immediate family, pretty much blessings. And Hashem should bless us all. And may they continue. Right. And I hope for you too and for all the listeners. But I've also been around people who have suffered, who have lost parents at a young age, people who've lost children, people who've lost, you know, I mean, I don't have to start enumerating, but we know how bad it can be. And I see some people fall apart and their lives are destroyed. And some people, for some reason, have this resilience. They dig deeper and they're normal. We're not talking about they, they, and they rebuild, they build. And you always want to know what's the formula. I, I always see the formula comes down to that they had a healthy support system and they had faith. Faith. Um, God in the bigger picture. And that's like what held them up when th- all else failed. Like a woman who had lost a lot. She was like a, she was in a terrorist attack in, in Israel and they had to rebuild her whole face without going into graphic detail. So you she knew told, this woman? Yeah, I yeah. met her. She came to a class of mine. And she told me, I mean, it's a long story. She was an American girl who was completely secular. She went to Israel to study in yeshiva her, against her parents' will. And she happened to be Friday in one of the cafes when there was one of those attacks back in the 90s. You remember 1980s that? 1980s or it was yeah, 90s? Yeah, yeah. 90s. I don't remember when yeah. exactly. Bottom line is, and she said, she asked every day, she said to God, take my life. Why? You took my face. You took my hearing. You took my sense. I mean, she like lost a lot. And then one day she woke up, she said, with a surge of willpower to, to live and want to live. And she said these words, I'll never forget it. And this is coming from a credible source. She said, you don't know the power of betochen, of trust and faith until you have nothing left but betochen. Hear that? Said so. I realized the power of it to have that connection. That is the formula. And as much as we we can complain to God why He allows these things to happen, the same God is what gives the strength to get through it. Yeah. As 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 paradoxical as it sounds, that is ultimately. And I see it. 
I mean, I'm sure, go back to your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, everyone in our families. I don't think there's a person. Look at that moment where they had that extra strength of hope that they'd make it through when they had to escape a certain country. You know, today we have it easy relatively, but there was a time we lived in really very terrible uh, circumstances. It always came down to that extra, but v'hisha amdalandu, like we say, Pesach, that there was the, the faith that, that withstood, that helped us get through the, the difficult times. This is why in the merit of Jewish women, we, we, we go out of Golis, out of Mitzrayim, because they had faith. It's, it's true. Healthy faith is a tremendous resource. It's very comforting to know that no matter what a person's dealing with, there's someone out there who um, their lives like, fell apart from it, and there's another person out there who was resilient from the, a very similar situation. So there's always hope for a, a better tomorrow, no matter what a person's dealing with. It's just we need to work Absolutely. on our resilience. But bringing it back to Rosh Hashanah theme, look, Rosh Hashanah, we say, is the day when Kabbalah's Malchus, we, we accept God as... Essentially, it's the creation of the world. It's the creation of the human being. It's our collective birthday. It's when God makes creates this relationship. So in a way, if I were to sum it up in one line, Rosh Hashanah is your day as a human being to embrace that partnership with God, the vote of confidence in you, that you will live up to why you're here. And when you have that connection, as the expression from a mayor of Primishlam, when you're when you're bound above, you don't fall below because you have something to hold on to. That is really what it comes down to. I think the 12 steps and almost everything in recovery and healing goes back to that principle. You can't do it yourself. You have something to hold on to. And in this case, Hashem, the ones that love you, values that you hold on to, the things that are stronger than you are. You mentioned before, right. you can't s- solve a problem from within the system. So you need something outside the system. Right. And we have that too. That's our soul. That's our connection. Right. And and so now we have the energy of the holiday season, let's say where Hashem is close, how do we how do we use it to our advantage now? Like, what do we what can we do practically? Well, we've covered the thing very directly. <laughs> this. Right, right. I think each of us has to. You know, I like to think in terms. You want to give people tools they can work with. Yeah. Right. You know, you tell people things that are that are are, are too too much and can't bite off more than they can chew. So, to me, it comes down to a few key meditations, if you wish, or a few key uh, thoughts. I guess uh, talking points, I don't know what the word for it, bullets. Um, one is that Rosh Hashanah is your beginning. Rosh Hashanah is God renewing your contract. So you have to ask yourself, if you're standing with God right now, what would you say? Both what you need, but also what you're bringing to the table. It's not only just what you need. You have to also share, what am I contributing? I think many people, um, let's be honest, are usually distracted most of us will say, I was very busy this year. I had family, I had business, I had other distractions, and I didn't have time to think about the things that mattered most. A lot of people will say that. Fine, say that to God. There's nothing wrong with saying that. Okay. But be honest. Be honest. Because if, you don't, if you're not honest, then how are we going to build a relationship? You don't, you're not even acknowledging. Right. So I think honesty around that. Yeah. Um, I think asking ourselves a question like, why am I here? Most people answer to be happy, to make money. I can buy everything I need. I'll give a lot of tzedakah. I want to bring up a healthy family. But it's a lot more than that. You've got skills. You have tools. You know, I, I mentioned to you in the, in the beginning, You, both of you, I'm going to use you as a, li, a living example. 
I don't know how you ended up doing this program, but you're doing it. You're using your skills and your charisma and your connections to bring a message of hope and guidance to to thousands, maybe millions of people ultimately. That to me is something, I'm not saying to flatter you, you can stay to Hashem, we, we, we dedicated time and energy to do that. Now, whether you gain personally satisfaction, that's fine. It doesn't say everywhere you have to do anything selflessly, but you're doing it. You're doing it for a cause that's just not just about you. To me, it's a perfect example that you have in some way found some mission. This is addition to being great wives and, and mothers and everything else you're doing in your life, which I'm sure you're doing great things. But I'm saying, to me, that's an example. If everybody listening to this program would say, let me find something that I can do in the same way. You've got musical talent? Why don't you go once a month, find yourself, a, go to an old age home, go to a home of special children, and play some songs for them, bring some smiles to people. I'm just throwing out or some other idea. ways. That's, huh? that's what it's all about. Exactly. That's what it's all about. To me, this is Rosh Hashanah at its essence. It's not just sitting and reading a sitter and going to shul. Obviously, we have the customs and we dip uh, apple and honey and we want a sweet year. But it comes down to my mission in this world. To me, if you can personalize it like that, you have a real Rosh Hashanah. And that will change your life. Because if you don't do it that way, you're going to go through the traditions. And then we come next year and we'll do the same thing again and again and again. It's personalizing it. Right. Honestly, like in, in your case, I mean, you're sitting right now. I'm sure you're thinking about what are you going to do next year? in your program, that to me is a Rosh Hashanah experience because that's what you're doing. I mean, I do the same in my work. I feel very proud. And, and you don't have to be necessarily full-time in uh, Shlichus work or Hafatza work. You can be a business person. You can be doing other things. But you know that all of it, there's a, an end to it. It's not the business that you're running. It's why you're running that business in order to either reach certain people I think anyone who has that sense knows the reason I'm placed, why did Hashem give me this Hatzlacha? It may be because I have to meet certain people. And, and that's the people that I'm going to ultimately, you know, one day, then the Shamas were affected by me and I was affected by them. I mean, it's, it's, it's essentially a higher state of consciousness in everything that you do. That's what it really comes down to. People are going to be listening to this before Rosh Hashanah and before Yom Kippur and before Sukkot. So let's say going into Yom Kippur, is that that same way of thinking, going into Yom Kippur? What uh, no, in do? general terms, yes, but let's break it down. I okay. think that since it's three, three, we'll call it three uh, milestones. Yeah. So Rosh Hashanah, I would say, is renewal, like the renewed attitude, a new year, new energy. You mentioned uh, my mission, my calling. The birthday, that's when the human being is born. Yom Kippur, I would look at more like the birth of hope, forgiveness, uh, sanctity, because that's what it is. You know, mending things, knowing that even when things were broken, you can fix it. That would be, I think, the real energy of Yom Kippur. And Sukkot is the energy of joy, of celebrating life, celebrating your connection. It's actually, Chassidus says that Sukkot is the celebration of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you know, like you don't dance and make somersaults on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It's more serious. On Sukkot, we like explode in song. It's like the by the chuppah, it's more serious. And then afterwards, you do the dancing, right? That idea. There. So Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is like the connection, and Sukkot is the, the celebration of it. And, and celebrating in an unlimited way all the way through the days of Sukkot, all the way through Simchas Torah. And that's what it says. It, I mean, and, and, and remember, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and Sukkot can also be carried over to every day. Like when we say Modani in the morning, it's a mini Rosh Hashanah. When we stand Shaman Esrei, it's a mini Yom Kippur. And the simcha in general of our mitzvahs of the, we do it through the day is like a Sukkot. 
That's nice. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's not a one-time thing, which again, to me, once you compartmentalize it like that, okay, you know, Tishrei is over. Let's move on. Next is uh, Halloween. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, have, you know what I mean? <laughs> or Thanksgiving. Next is Hanukkah. <laughs> okay. I just meant it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the next party. Right. Um, yeah, for sure. And I, I just have to say, on a personal note, remember, I grew up, I, I saw the Rebbe on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur Sukkot. So I saw like how it's supposed to be done by the, by the top. So some, and, tell us something that impacted you from then. Let's start with Rosh Hashanah, okay? So, uh, so Rosh Hashanah, the highlight was shofar, sounding of the shofar. The Rebbe blew the shofar every year, made the blessings. So I remember this from my youngest childhood. I remember, I think the first time I ever saw the Rebbe blow shofar was 770 was much smaller than it is today. And my father took me to the roof. It was a skylight. The skylight was open, so we were by the roof. <laughs> peeking down, and we were like on top of the Rebbe. The Rebbe oh, was wow. like down there <laughs> wow. from the roof. And um, and remember, we were leaning over, and I said to my father, you know, I think I, I could fall over here. He says, it won't be so bad. You'll fall in the right place. <laughs> that was the childhood. But on a serious note, um, you know, it's hard for me to put into words you know, a moment of truth. You know, those uh, moments, that magical moments in life, whether you see something in nature or yeah, day of your wedding or anything that's like, no Hot words. Stirring. Words are just not. Uh, so the, I'm thinking about it as we speak. The Rebbe's face glowing. He had this talus. His face was completely, uh, you know, I would say, non-human almost. It was like angelic, glowing. It was like such a glow. Rebbe had this tremendous forehead. And by the talus, he didn't, wasn't wearing a hat. So it was like a shine. And in front of him were the bags, these sealed bags with all the notes that everybody wrote in, sharing all their pains and their joys and their needs. And I remember thinking about it, that here is all, and the Rebbe would throw his talus over it. Mm. And he would cry. And the whole show was, I talk about thousands of people, you could hear a pin drop. You hear the Rebbe whimpering, like on Rosh Hashanah. I mean, was this on Rosh Hashanah? At on Rosh Hashanah, night? before shofar. Before shofar. He's standing on the bima, and those bags are there, and he puts this talus over it, and that would say Lam Natseach. Well, that's very special. I mean, I, I grew up in Australia, never heard it, and there are many listeners who never met the Rebbe, and you're sharing this, and it's very special. Either were you ever um, for Tishrei at the Rebbe? No, no. So, so it was, we're all- it was awesome, and it was you saw a, a tzaddik, you know, you saw. A, a man of God, like standing and, I mean, it brings me even to emotions as I speak, you know, standing on behalf of all of us, beseeching. It was a moment that I live with all the time because it's like, you know, lifts all of humanity to another place. And I felt like heaven on earth. Yeah, I never would forget something like that. It was absolutely of a different uh, dimension. Wow. Uh, but that was the experience. The main thing was to live with it afterwards, to integrate it, to integrate it. And remember, this, the sounding of the shofar took long. By the Rebbe sounding the shofar was difficult because as I came to learn, he wasn't just a trumpet blower. It was uh, piercing heavens, and that's not so easy to do. So the same sound that, was, that afterwards someone else would blow the shofar, the later sounds, was easy for them. 
But for a Rebbe, it wasn't because he was dealing with, he's talking about Xeris, he's dealing with all the different blockages. So imagine all the toxic blocks and the obstacles and impediments and he's trying to pierce your way through. And it's a bunch of us who are far from perfect human beings. That was the, you know, maybe I'm being poetic, but it was my, it was my, it was like a cosmic experience. That was Rosh Hashanah. Did you feel uplifted? Did you feel like the Rebbe was lifting you up? Absolutely. I was transformed. I don't think I'm the person today. I mean, it was obviously a combination. I I worked for the Rebbe, so as for bring-ins and talks. But Rosh Hashanah was, like, brought it all together, you know. Um, and especially when you were familiar with the Rebbe throughout, so Rosh Hashanah was like a uh, special one, of course. I wasn't just transformed. Transformed till this day because of it. Were you ever with moments of truth? I was never the Tishrei. Emes, the moments of truth. I wish that I would have seen it. In a world of Sheker, in a world of many falsities and plenty of duplicity, you don't forget moments of truth. They stand out. They're very glaring. It's like you know moments of light in a dark room. You remember them very well. And they take you with you. And they take you, and they empower you, and 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 way it it drives me what I do today. I try to bring some of that MS and some of that light into my work. I have no question about that, that's for sure. And the more you can do that, the more you like chat, you're a channeler. And then Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur. <laughs> Yom Kippur that stands out most are a few things, whereas first of all, before Yom Kippur began, right before Kol Nidre, the Rebbe would give a blessing to the students, to the Tmimim of the yeshiva. And it was only the Rebbe and the students, nobody else was allowed in upstairs. Awesome, because it was a father and his children, and we know the Rebbe didn't have uh, biological children, and this was like special because the Rebbe had actually initiated. He said, "Before Kol Nidre, a father blesses children, and since the students are the children, so the Rebbe would come in with a kittel, talis. So it was the Yom Kippur right before Kol Nidre, and start with Vaydaber Vayirivarechacha." It was, uh, it was not dry eye in the room. It was packed like we were sardines. The walls were sweating, but the father was talking to us. And it was um, like a special love, you know, and uh, it was only once a year. So we didn't have this every day. And we knew it was, um, you know, I know people's lives changed right there in that room. I know someone, more than one person told me how, you know, because that was that that connection, the father and children. That was before Yom Kippur started. And then, I mean, Yom Kippur, every minute was rich with stuff, but when the Rebbe would stand up at the end of Yom Kippur by Napoleon's march, he would go up on his chair and dance. <laughs> also, one of those, it was like a march of victory after a whole day Yom Kippur, you know, it's at the end, and the Rebbe's talus was covering his whole face, and you could see it was it was awesome as well. Another, and I'm trying to give, and they were all different. Right. It's, it's everything had its own energy, you know. And then there's Simchus Torah. Simchus Torah, my memories. Yeah, the Rebbe dancing in the middle and leading a crowd. It was, uh, and I want to compare it to a rock concert. 
you know, um, but some people that's the only it thing. It was a they, holy they, rock concert. Yeah. No, but, and yeah. you have to be there to understand, to, to ex- get ecstasy. that energy. It was ecstasy. Right. It was, and there was no physical music. It was only people singing. Wow. But right. it was like the highest of the high. The Rebbe would lead. And it was, you know, without Hagbalas, like the Rebbe generally was very discreet and things were done very reserved, very dignified. Nesim Chastara was all out. And, um, so you really let just let go of any of your sorrows and tapped into oh, yeah. this place of during that joy. Those, those moments, those that evening, and it was the night of Simchas Shmini is the night of Simchas and then by day, it was. Uh, you know, you're bringing me back to it. I I live it like today as it was then. Nothing changed. Time has not passed in this regard. These are eternal moments. I will never ever. And it was all part of that and relentless. I mean, today, you know, we all have our challenges. I do a lot of work. People ask me what drives me, you know. This is what drives me because it lives within me. It's not for me. It's not a past. Right. It's the present. And also the Rebbe had this way of you felt responsible to carry it on. It wasn't, oh, I'm, you know, nostalgia. I'm telling you about let's go visit the museum of the past. You know, I feel like this is our responsibility to bring it to others. And I think that's why the Rebbe did it. It was not about, it was, uh, it was is to, to perpetuate it to our children and so on. You know, my children were little, but they, I took them. But I feel, you know, I, I see today, uh, I, don't, I don't cry over the fact that people have not seen the well, Rebbe. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Because there is that element, but I, don't, I, I look at it the opposite way. You know, we, those that of us that did see it, how can we articulate it? Right. And how can we Pass it convey down. it? Mm-hmm. It was just like things that you convey to your children, you know, those, those little quiet moments that nobody knows you convey it with a look in your children's eyes with a word you know you convey to them some of the beautiful things of your life well, like a grandfather them, a grandmother the rebbe right. or well, any, one of them is walking by the rebbe like i understand that feeling because of what i experienced walking past the rebbe for dollars but we both of us and me, oh, a lot of our listeners never experienced a tishrei i know so i mean so in many ways i try for me i write a book 60 days mm-hmm. i try to do other things i do videos I try even now. I mean, I'm proud no, of sharing. It's the energy this. that you're bringing right. to the even energy that the you're story bringing to pass on to this is, generation. Is being transmitted. That's how but it I want is. Also, because you see, to me, it's not a cult personality. It's not that the Rebbe charismatic blue eye. To me, he represented like, you know, a man of God. You know, like a Moshe Rabbeinu, a person that was living his life 24 seven of what God wants of you. How many people can say that? And so, so Tishrei Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Sukkot was a man of God experiencing it you know to me that's so what would you a, say a living example yes so what would you say on a tishrei today let's let's talk about sukkahs and simchas torah to make it more meaningful where we can we can uh, like let's say meaningful conversations at a sukkah's table what would yeah, you yeah. what would you tell what would you tell the generation today great we don't have what you had um well i definitely would i don't i'm not a believer in saying oh we had it then too bad on you you didn't have it i don't feel that way at all mm-hmm that's not how I think, you know, because I didn't have other things. My parents and grandparents must have had other, you know. Um, I would say a few things. First of all, uh, um, I think it's, it's, it's just looking for the right words. I think you want to find these truths within yourself. And like I mentioned before, your calling. To me, the goal was not to share a story that inspires about the Rebbe, but more importantly, how you can re-experience it yourself in your own way. 
Um, and the fact that we don't have the Rebbe physically, that's how God made it. That means we cannot think of it that we're deprived. We have to think there must be another way of experiencing it. And that's through our being mashpia, influencing others. I think many shluchim, those that met the Rebbe, those that didn't many feel that when they inspire others, they're recreating that picture. So I look at it like that. You, you've been to the Kotel, right? Almost everybody's been. just there. Oh, okay. So you know, besides the history behind it, but ultimately, what are you really experiencing? You know, this is a place, a wall, that's standing for thousands of years. The Jews cried at this wall. There was a Beis Amigdash here. We're not living in the past. We're trying to say, you know, we leave from this wall. Let's take this Kedusha, this holiness, into my life. So I tried to figure out how to bring what the Rebbe represents into your life. Like, you know, to be honest, the first Rosh Hashanah, I remember after the Rebbe's passing, or I would say not after the stroke, and the first time I heard someone else sound shofar, which I never in my life did, it was almost a joke to me. It was like a guy getting up and playing a, you know, blowing a horn. And it was like not even comparable. I mean, I remember I was like almost embarrassed. And not that this guy was no good. He just, he was a good trumpet sounder. But this expression, you know, Ashrei Om Yede Srua, not Toike Srua. It says not someone who sounds a shofar, but someone who knows the secret of the shofar. But I didn't blame him. I, it was, you know. But then I realized, no, that's not, that's not the way to go. We have to figure out how do we capture that spirit, you know? So in my case, for example, I've read, I've led many Rosh Hashanah services. I'll be leading here in Florida doing this Rosh Hashanah. So what I try to do Lucky is- Lucky them. Yeah, I try to go back to what I experienced and convey it. I'll probably tell a story of what I saw yeah. before Shofar. So try to evoke the, the personal feeling of commitment. You know, there are moments when you feel that I'm all the way in, you know, later, Sometimes it dissipates, but in a moment of real, uh, that's why I try to create that high moment of connection. And uh, so that's the job. That's as much as you can do. Um, and I think that's the way we live up to it. I don't think we can recreate the actual experience exactly as it was. That's why you have a Rebbe. But we can, we, we can personalize, we can internalize it. I do feel, I do see there are people who are literally, their lives are connected. They will do everything to perpetuate Torah, Siddhis, the Rebbe's message, the teachings. To me, this is, that's part of the extension of, of these experiences. Yeah. Accountability also, it's where yeah. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. doing our part. Everyone, everyone has some part to play. If like, we're you know, here, yeah. we do. It's also important to be able to answer a tough question if your children ask you, okay, you took so and such awe of the Rebbe. You, you went by dollars, like the biggest event, you know. I talk about it my way. What does it mean to me? I never met this man. So, you ha so your challenge is how are you going to translate the power of the Rebbe in, in a way that your child who never met the Rebbe is going to? It's not enough to see a video. You know, video gives you the history of it. You, you have to find. So I tell, I, I would say to my grandchildren, my children did see that, but to my grandchildren, I would say, remember you have a unique mission in this world. That's how do I know? Because I heard it from this man and he lived it and he tries to make me live it. And if you live up to finding your calling, your mission, your accountability, you will be a chaser of the Rebbe and the Rebbe will live through you. So you, you have to personalize it. You have to make it person feel it's relevant to me. Not because re remember the Rebbe because he's relevant right. to your father or your grandfather. That's nice for having a picture of your great grandfather on the wall. 
But that's not, why is it relevant to me? It's like, what he means to me. What is, how does he, and, and how do you do that? You learn the Rebbe's teachings and you follow his guidelines. Yeah, it's not the image the of the person as much as what he stands for. Yeah. The cause. To walk the walk. <laughs> okay, I hope yes. this. I, I feel I feel well, inadequate yeah. whether this does justice to. Well, you know, I didn't. You definitely I didn't gave think us... we'd go all the way there. Yeah. but that's already like <laughs> we went we go there. a different direction. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, but I, this is this is the most powerful back. direction. I'm more delighted. Than delighted. <laughs> I'm. This is what I mean. I, it's my. What I, I, I say? This. Uh, this is why we're here to to try yeah. to. All right, I'll, I'll bring I, it. I'll, I'll I'll take it to more a more practical. Um, that's why we end with quotes, now. because yeah. we need to bring it all together. So. But what I want to, I thought just for Sukkot to, to, I know you wrote the book Towards a Meaningful Life, so you're into meaningful topics and conversations. Um, what do you think at a, at a Sukkot table, at all the gatherings together, there's going to be Rosh Hashanah, Erev Yom Kippur meal, what are, what are and, and Sukkot, some Chastara, what are some meaningful conversations in today's world that we can bring up? Or some stories, cute stories, or anecdotes. Or anecdotes. I, I, well, I would always begin. I, I'm a big believer in, in especially for children and and for adults as well. A, a business can't function without a mission statement. What is your mission statement in life? I think it's one of the most provocative questions. And if it's stated right, you could really have conversations endlessly about. It. Go around the table and ask everybody what their mission statement or is. Or maybe you're going to have to start with yourself to be an example. What do they think is their, why they think they're here? Even if they don't have an answer, remember the question of a wise person is half an answer. Plant a question like that in someone's mind, gets them thinking. I remember a few years ago, a woman wrote to me, a mother, she says, Rosh Hashanah is coming, what do you suggest I can do for my children like something new? And I thought about it a lot, and a whole series of different things that happened, and I said, I wrote an article about it that a lot of people actually used. I wrote, what you can do is every morning and every evening when you, when you wake your children or when they go to sleep, besides telling them I love you and all that, also say, you know, God sent you to me and I'm blessed to have you as my child and I'm here to do everything I can to help you live up to your calling, to your the purpose. And I, uh, I'm like a gardener in a garden. And I'm honored and blessed to be able to consider you my child. And you say that when you say Mardani, Shakzata bin Shmasi, and Shamashanasata bi Tahurihi. And then in the evening, Biyat Khafkidruhi. And I say, I can assure you you do this every day, it'll become a conversation piece. And that's what happened. I wrote it in an article around four, maybe over five years ago, probably. And I can't tell you this woman and others wrote to me, it was excellent. It changed our whole week by breakfast, by lunch. We talk about it. My husband talks and started becoming a conversation. You know, so to put it in Chabad language, shlichus. But shlichus has also become an overused word. What does it really mean? Shlichus means you're on a mission. It's tremendous. How many people of 8 billion people on this planet know they're here for a particular mission? And if you don't do it, no one else can do it but you. To me, this is as, as quintessential to Rosh Hashanah as anything. Because that's what Adam and Chava put in God Naden, of the Lashamra, and are you going to do it? Or they wandered off and decided to do something else. So, I mean, talk, I would focus on the positive. That's definitely one talking point, in my view. You have to find the right language for the yeah. right people. I mean, Actually, this is, could be a language. We actually did a conversation once with each other on one of our episodes where we were 
um, we brought up different ways to have more meaningful relationships and conversations <clears throat> with people. And one of the things you could ask people is instead of asking them, how's life treating you? You could ask them, how are you treating life? Okay. It's kind of a similar thing when you ask yourself, how are you treating life? You kind of zone into what is my mission, you know? Um, yeah. And and listen, you could talk about it more philosophically. You could talk about it more psychologically, more personally. There are many ways. And um, and it also doesn't hurt, especially with younger children, it doesn't hurt to incentivize and get your children, like, be creative a little. Let them let them say something that's unique yeah, and creative. Right. It's the, plant, the key is that it's planting seeds. You never forget these questions. Because I you go back into our own childhood, you, you probably have pleasant memories of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shabbos. But you don't necessarily have memorable memories. You know, it's more like warm memories. And the more you plant into the conversation at a table, as your children grow into teenagers and adults, you've what you've done is you brought transcendental, transcendental, and higher consciousness language into the conversation. I find many of us don't do that, even if we ourselves value it, we don't say it, and that's not, just another way of saying speaking chassidus at the table without having to quote a mimer necessarily. But you're speaking about God. You're speaking about our purpose with God. And not just going through the rituals, because many one of us remember, you know, what is a Shabbos? Light the candle, eat the meal, you fall asleep in the same place, you eat the same food. I mean, not the same food, the same recipes. You know, it's all very technical. Rosh Hashanah, to me, I remember more of the arguments whether you do you, do, you, do you eat the fruit before you wash or after you wash. <laughs> Every year, the same. Nobody can figure it out. One minute, do you eat the fruit before you wash or after? Well, it depends which <laughs> night. The apple, I think, is before. Right. The the fruit, fruit, the is, fruit. whatever. I, I, I don't even. <laughs> okay, there you go. That becomes the the dominant conversation, and someone say, "Why are we eating fruit in the first place?" Okay. My point is, it's like one. So I, I think anything that you can spiritualize the experience mm-hmm. and get it beyond the ritual, beyond just the tradition, like some deeper meaning behind it all. And you prepare, you, you tell your children, and you give them, a, your, you reward them. You tell them, you know, give me, a, why do we dip our, besides the fact sweet year that honey is sweet and, and honey, I'm sorry, and an apple is sweet. Is there anything deeper about it? Right. You know, you, you try to, you have to bring the neshama into the experience. That's the bottom line. So for many of us, it's the nagunim. We sing. And sometimes good conversation. I, to me, that's the, the key to it all. Mm-hmm. In everything, in everything. Yom Kippur, yeah. I have yeah. to say, Yom Kippur, I, <laughs> I was never idea. traumatized by Yom Kippur, but Yom Kippur to me, every Yom Kippur was just this intense day. We woke up four o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. In those days, you didn't do kapuras in the streets. We had to drive who knows where to some chicken market, <laughs> 3.30 in the morning. You're half asleep, a little child, and then you see chickens running around, and then right, you run into the mikveh. <laughs> And then you're running to the, again the mikveh, yeah. and then this, and then lekach, and the meal. It, it, it to me, thank God, I grew up in a home that it wasn't so dogma, so I'm not so like overwhelmed by it, and I can smile about it. But I know it's very intense. I wish someone had said a little like, well, "So what's happening?" And someone has said to me, "You know that in a few hours, Moshe Rabbein is coming down from the mountain with a new set of tablets, and we're going to say salachti kederecha that we have hope." 
Even that would have been something. Well, you just said it here. Thank yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm saying just to say a little about, yeah. because what happens is the rituals can become so overwhelming right. that you forget what the message is. Yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. that's, that's what's incumbent upon all of us to do something about that. Same thing with sukkahs. You know, it's beautiful. Sukkah and uh, whatever you know, goes on a sukkah, people build the sukkah and they bring all their stuff. But again, why? What do we sit in the sukkah for? I mean, just certain basic basics. All you got is, I mean, you don't even need any profound chassidus, but chassidus talks about this. What's the neshama of a sukkah? What's the neshama of all these experiences? What is the neshama of a sukkah? <laughs> <laughs> Are you asking me? <laughs> no, I'm saying it's the, it's, ultimately, it's yeah. the energy that you bring to things. Because you have people like Lahabdil, they, you know, a football game, for example. You're sitting in a stadium, you know, you're squished with a bunch of people. Sometimes it's freezing cold. It's not necessarily a pleasant experience. Right. But it's the energy you're bringing to it. People are excited about it. You get that. Even, even with something like Erev Yom Kippur, a 4 a.m. wake up can be like, ooh, we get to wake up at 4 a.m. But you have to... Yeah, but, but to me, it was really, you know, like you're sleeping someone out of bed. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's a solemn time of year, too. Yeah. Forget right. the amusement park. Right. At least yeah, we end up seeing a few chickens being yeah. slaughtered. You know, right, it's not smell. a football game. No, I don't, again, I don't, I, to me, it wasn't like that. Uh, Sukkot is a great conversation about security. Why would we go out of a very secure home, rainproof, waterproof, into a sukkah where we're vulnerable, if it's cold, it's outside. Bugs, bees. Yeah, and then if, especially if it's raining or it could rain. You know, what, 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 what provides security? That's really, by the way, the message. That why do we sit in a sukkah to remind us that Hashem provides security, not our walls of our houses. It's a great conversation piece. For example, you know, Lulav and Esrig. I mean, it's all, everything has meaning. The, the four meaning. Why these four? Why not a watermelon, some celery, and uh, a potato, and uh, I don't know, three, the fourth, <laughs> whatever it is. Carrot. Why these four? Is this random? You know, I, I assure you, you see, another thing is our children are much more creative and imaginative than we think. Our schools tend to create everybody should become efficient mathematicians. Let their imagination go a bit, and they, they can come up with great ideas. And I think if you fuel that, you know, I know children read their Dvartaras from the books, but sometimes get them to be creative. Let them say something even crazy. You know, I'd love to hear two six-year-olds tell me why they think it's an estrog without giving them guidance. I'm sure they'll come up with something cute. You know, why this estrog, lemon, citron, whatever you call it. I, to me, this is, that I, I, I really think we all can do it. It's just that we just go by rote with what we were trained to do. So we repeat what was done with us. And you have to really, especially today, we all know how much competition is out there. Right. You know, someone just told me that they, their children went to them to shul uh, last year, Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. They brought it along their phones. And the whole davening, they're watching something or listening or social media. So I said, yeah, because they're bored by the davening. So they did that. Not getting into now the Shomer Shabbos or Shomer Yontav thing. But, but there's a lot of competition. You better give your children some good alternatives. Right. Because if you don't, there's plenty out there that's entertaining. And a lot of it is actually uh, even destructive. So I think we have we have beautiful traditions, but we need to dig deeper, and we can't just rely on the rote, the mechanical stuff. You know, I always say maybe five hundred years ago we picked up Yerushalayim from the smell of chicken soup in our grandmother's kitchens. Today there's a lot of other smells out there. There's a lot of other influences, That's and true. and and yes, we have beautiful homes, but you have to engage. We have to step up. You have to step up, engage, be proactive, get things happening. 
bring an atheist or two to the table, have an argument about God, that's always useful. It's always useful. Yeah. No, because yeah, it creates a conversation. Yeah. It's not like, you know, y- your children should see that you don't only have an echo chamber in your table, right. everybody agreeing. Maybe it's good to have a different opinion. And that you're so listening. So you have an argument. I mean, I don't mean, yeah. uh, and I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean, a good, a good engaging conversation. You're willing to listen, too. It's that yeah, skill. Yeah, learn. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. go on. When we get to Simchat Torah, um, how would you define joy? Like, what is your definition of joy? Huh. Um, I think there are many definitions that come to mind to me. First of all, there's just the joy of, of your existence. I mentioned before just being. I think many people are not comfortable in their own skin. So they're not happy. You know, there are people just not happy, uh, whatever reason it is. They, maybe they think they should have been someone else, or they feel someone else was blessed and they're resentful. I think uh, the first Simchas Chaim is not necessarily a loud, dancing joy. It's just a certain inner tranquility, that you're at peace with yourself, you're happy with yourself. And I think that's a very fundamental to me. Because you can dance and, and, and sing and still be sad inside, not really happy. Not saying it doesn't have any value, but so I think that to me is a very you know I see people and my father was very much like that. He was um, I saw him sitting at a table, and he had this. He was so comfortable in his own skin. It was so tremendously uh, uh, impactful on me because I saw a person who was not performing. He wasn't trying to prove anything. He could sit three, four hours. My father was a very good conversationalist. He was like a socialite, but he could sit hours and not say a word. So comfortable, he didn't have to. People argued about things. He didn't have to show that I have, he has something to say. I saw a very internal simchas achaim that he had, and he didn't have an easy life. He was orphaned at nineteen already. You know, I'm just giving an example. So it wasn't a, a loud and pronounced simcha. If you met him, it's not like you see you know he he had an exuberance then, but it wasn't like you know one of these like jovial. Um, but that but that was a very that had big impact. Um, uh, I don't want to compare. The Rebbe was very much like that. Very, there's a certain inner peace with himself. Did not need to prove anything to anyone. Did not, you know, the thing, the things he believed in were very strong, very strong values. You could not shake that. To me, that's a real. That to me is. A, I know. I don't know if everybody would call that simcha. They think maybe they call it confidence, but I think it's a simcha. Another thing of simcha, I think, is which maybe grows from that. You know, why do people not have simcha? Let's talk the other opposite way. What's what's? Why should you not be happy? So often it's because you set your mind on something you feel you don't have, you feel you're deprived. How could I be happy when my sister or my brother or my cousin or whatever, someone has a house that's a mansion and I'm living in a little shoebox. You know, so in other words, you're lacking the Samer Bechelke thing. You don't feel, you know, you're comparing yourself to someone else or to someone else's standards, which is again, you're not looking at what you have, you're looking at what you're lacking. Um. And or you grew up in a home. I mean, I remember talking to someone, and I don't know. I was in a certain house, and there was a, a woman came into the house, and she said, "Is that chandelier real?" And I was like, "So the woman in that home was a cousin of mine." I said, "Yeah." She says, "No, it can't be." <laughs> and later I found out because she has that chandelier in her own home, and mm-hmm. she couldn't stand the fact that someone else has it because mm-hmm. she thought she was exclusive. And I said, "How could a person like that ever be happy?" You have it already. What do you care if she has it? You know, I'm just, so very often it's so much about our, you know, projecting. What do I look like? 
Am I going to look good? You know, I mean, the Shulchan Aruch begins, don't be embarrassed for those that mock you. Because the Rebbe would quote it very often, because that's what happens. You, We want to belong. And if you don't fit in, you don't feel, you know, like like even what the Rebbe told people about, a wedding doesn't have to be so expensive, but everybody's competing with each other. What will it look like? It doesn't pass, you know, that. So I think Simcha is the opposite, where you just feel happy with what you have. You feel, you know what your problem My children are happy. So I don't have necessarily what someone else may have. And who knows what other miseries they have, even though they may have a lot of material stuff. It's it's that type of, um, you know, that to me is how I would define simcha. Yeah. Uh, I, I I don't know how, you know, sukkahs comes, and most people think simcha means you go dancing in the streets. Now that is definitely an expression of it, but we all know simcha is a deeper thing than that. You, simcha is also the way you are at home. It's not just in the streets. So I would that's what I would work on, the inner, you know, the reasons to be besimcha, that your life has blessings to it. And yes, every all of us have strengths and some things that didn't work exactly as you wanted, so what? You know, there's just a simcha with what you have. I have to work on this a lot because I'm an ambitious guy. And sometimes I feel inadequate. I feel I've done, but I didn't do as much as I should do. So it's not so much guilt, but I become very frustrated by it. I'm saying personally, and I feel... And then I say, but you've done this. And, and then I say, once you're just trying to feel good about yourself, you know? You don't know where the balance is, where you should, where you should be, have some angst to want to grow, and where you should be more babanucha at peace that you've achieved. It's a hard that, balance. It is. It's very hard balance, yeah. especially when you have big goals. You want to really, and you say, oh, wow. And then I say, one second, you have big goals, but you've also gotten somewhere. It's not, but it's not that easy when you're very driven and you're a perfectionist and you want to, you know, you want to conquer the world and stuff like that. It's 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 a difficult one. Yeah, we, um, we know. <laughs> I'm saying we always talk about that. But I will go back that. to what I say. I think that when people are doing, uh, are living up to a mission or calling, that's not their own self. They're generally going to be happier. Do you tell me? Right. I'd love to ask you this question. Can I ask you a question? Oh boy! <laughs> well, I think you made yeah. it very attainable. No, no. The fact that you both are doing this program, okay? Yeah. I'm, I'm a little in this work. That's why right. I. Uh, um, how's it changed your life? Your own simcha sachaim, your own sense of, of of purpose, your sense of satisfaction. Honestly, you know, how has it affected you? I mean, I I can speculate and assume, but it'd be an interesting question how it's affected. I don't mean affected you as far as how many people are writing to you and thanking you. That I understand, but more internally, has it made you more at peace with yourself? Do you feel like you're you're living up to uh, like your mission? which to me would have a lot of implications on yourself, on your family and your children, even if they're not involved in this. It's just interesting. What, do you, what, do you, what would you yeah, say? It's definitely been life-changing in um, hearing from people such as you and gaining inspiration and then working on yourself to put it into action. It definitely creates a lot more meaning and growth and uh, spirituality and uh, purpose and has helped us both get in line with, with – um, what the the truthful mission is in life, so that definitely it, it's been it's been a life changing experience, and I know and yes, men it, it is very meaningful when many of our listeners listeners share with us that it's done the same for them. So it and I I agree that that definitely brings a, um, a joy. There's joy in knowing that you've grown in a certain area, and there's joy in spirituality and and yeah. the tachon and. Um, I think the trust of even though you've got your ambitions and goals to know that you're working on yourself and, and working on uh, on the growth. 
Yeah. What would you say? I, I would say that I think we both went into this without a lot of confidence. We both wanted to do it. It was a small thing. We did it, you know, from our houses with our air, our little plugged-in earphones for fun. And I think once we started to bring Hashem into the picture, that's when we started to notice that this was bigger than we were. We made it about the mission and the, the spiritual mission and brought Hashem into the picture. That's when we started to see change happening. Yeah. So that's been life-changing. And, and let me ask you this. And what did it do to things like maybe more petty things that would have bothered you, let's say, five years ago? Are they less, you yes. know, significant? You know, so, yeah. certain things oh, you yeah. may have obsessed about, and today yeah. you realize that you're like, you know, much your horizons are bigger, so little things don't matter as much. Does that have such impact on you? Yes, there was definitely a lot of letting go of perfection and feeling the fear and doing it anyway, and yeah, not sweating the small stuff, being less triggered by little things. What when, what became little things? What yeah. used to be big things? That that happened. So it has to have yeah. impact on your children and your families. Yeah, yeah, it definitely right, has. Right. Yeah, yes. Definitely it's like has. an elevated consciousness that besides that they have into. celebrity mothers. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, oh, goodness, yeah. Um, it's, I mean, once you get an Academy Awards, you know you don't know what will happen. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Okay, the sky's yes, the limit. The sky's the limit. Like you say, the picture, the sky's there's the no limit. limits. But um, it's also you see one little step, what difference it can make. Like one little thought that you share that really can have an, a profound impact. And then working at putting it into action and you think, oh, what's this one little thing going to do? But you see what an effect it has on yourself and in turn, your family and the people around you. Um, I think that that's had a big effect. Uh, uh, it's been a big lesson for me and that one little thing leads to the next thing and that one little thing makes a big change. Beautiful. <laughs> I've done many interviews. I know the interviews. So uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving you a little of your own uh, Medicine. Practice. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I, it's great. It's great what you said. It's beautiful. But you know what? You, you mentioned celebrities. You know how they say, don't get too close to your heroes? Um, what, what would you say about that? Like, have you gotten close to a hero um, or someone that you've looked up to? Well, and yeah, the, what do you say about the that? Never You're a hero in your own. <laughs> the, the Rebbe never let me get close. So I never got too close. I didn't want to really get close because I always felt if I get too close, I'll make me more accountable. <laughs> This way, it's good to keep your distance with a man like the Rebbe, because the demands are high. Um, it's interesting, you know. I think the word hero is, uh, needs to be reviewed. Right. I think most heroes today are a uh, nonsense. It's 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 superficial heroes, you know, sports heroes, Hollywood. You know, right now, someone walked in now that's name, name recognition. Everybody would look, but you start thinking, what are you looking at exactly? It's not like a model of what, but. Um, so I, I think that anyone's going to look at their heroes, like those type of heroes, is going to be disappointed because you start seeing their lives and their scandals. It's not exactly impressive, you know. Um, I'm talking about sports and, and these things. Right. Real heroes. Look, uh, I remember when I was younger as a teenager, more naive and more idealistic. So there were people I looked up to. And then when I got to know them better, <laughs> I didn't. Not I can't say I didn't look up. I valued them. I had to learn that you have to take the pluses and realize not everybody's perfect. Right. I think that's uh, what, basically what it is. <laughs> yeah. And in my in my case, sometimes initially I was cynical and even uh, abrasive. I started saying, "Oh, you know what? Okay." And it's easy to become thrown the towel and just say, "No, you know they're all the same, all hypocrites and so on." But then you get a little older, and I came to realize everybody's got their strengths. And some have the weaknesses, and you just have to be balanced. And life is not black and white. That's really, for me, what it comes down to. I know some people see me as their hero, and frankly, I'd rather them not get too close. 
That will lead them to to look at everything because by, by no means uh, they're not going to find perfection. And uh, so, but that's more like on a personal thing. I've always like been very wary of that. Like when they started telling me you have to have your picture in every YouTube and this, I said, "What? Why not the message? You don't always need the messenger." And it's not because I'm so humble. And it's not like I, you know, I, you know, I have no problem. It wasn't that a problem with my face being there? But I didn't want. I wanted the focus to be on the message. It's much more perfect than on the person, the messenger. But that's nice. life, and that's what happens. You know, today it's well, that's very honest. Yeah. Yeah, and I was very, I I, I know because I'm going to go to Florida. I know what happens because once you're a YouTube, you know you got you have hundreds of thousands of subscribers, and this is I'm not saying this to toot my horn. I could be on a plane and I could have 20, 30 people look at me, and then they say, "Are you on, are you online?" I'm not talking about Jews even, and it, it doesn't get to my head really, honestly. But I don't personally like it. To me, it's, it's not so like I'm not. I like it only if it's reaching people and maybe the message is reaching. But I see a lot of it is, okay, let's do a selfie mm-hmm. because it's such a, such a superficial world. They want to do selfies. I was at a, 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 few, month, a few weeks ago at a, up in Monticello in a Haredish community for Shabbos. Everybody wanted to do selfies with me after Shabbos <laughs> because I was on YouTube. Right. Honestly, that was the reason. And, you know, so like, so I'm, and, but that that's but that's meaningless, frankly. That's like that's part of the. But that's, it's a very good question. I yeah. think I would rephrase the question: choose your heroes wisely. That's how I would go about it. Because that's a more heroes, positive spin. Huh? That's a more positive spin. Yeah, yeah. Because not everyone that you think is your hero should be your hero. Why they're your hero? Because what you know? What choose your heroes based on something of value, of what they represent. And that to me is the key because then even if the person turns out to be not perfect as you thought, but what they represented still is valuable. So you don't, you know, don't worship the person, worship what they represent, right. what they stand for. I think in Yiddishkeit and Judaism, we always did that anyway. You know? That's yeah. a great point. It's like with the medium, the message. Yeah, exactly. can relate to us. It doesn't always have to be the, the person in their entirety in all cases. Because like you said in the beginning, we've got the... Animal soul and the godly soul. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's a few things that we're curious about. What is the best advice you ever received? <laughs> <laughs> Very good question. I'm thinking there's a few pieces of advice I got. One of the best was learn from your mistakes and don't, uh, don't. Um, you mentioned before, don't sweat over the, the details, stuff. the small stuff. You know, learn from that. You, that you're going to learn most from the mistakes you make. Not from your successes. I remember when I first the first time I wrote a Fabringen of the Rebbe, it was Shabbos Parsha Miketz Hanukkah Tov Shemem, the end of 1979, December 79, and I. It was Saturday night. I was sitting with a typewriter. There were no computers then, and I was sitting in my house, a little blue typewriter, and I was typing. First page again. I had probably thirty, you know. You know, you, you throw out the page because there's no white, there were no word processing. So kept on taking those pages, clumping them up, throwing them in the garbage can. It's like four or five in the morning. And I finally I said, I can't do this. I took upon myself something that's just not going to happen. Maybe I, I was overconfident or what. My father happened to be awake at that point, And he was a writer, a journalist. And he sees them all worked up and frustrated. And he says, what's going on? So I told him, I don't think I can do this job. As soon as 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, someone wakes up. I'm calling and I'm saying, someone else has to do it. Even though there wasn't anyone. But 
So I remember he said to me very calmly, he said, look, writing is always going to be difficult, even in 40 years from now. It's never going to get easy. The only difference is that as time passes, you'll know you could do it, like a marathon. First time, you don't think you could do it. You run it once. doesn't make next time it's going to be easier. It's not going to be easier. You just know that you could do it. That's what he told me. He says, you keep going. You'll see you could do it. Uh, brilliant advice. It was simple. It wasn't a magic. He didn't give me any magic pills. He just told me, keep, keep at it. Keep going. And I continued. By 5, 6 in the morning, I got out the first draft of a page that was half decent. And then, and it's exactly right. I write today. Still very difficult. Every time it's a challenge, but I have a confidence. I know I can do it. I know I'm going to reach the finish line. If you don't know, you always wonder, maybe it's not for me. Maybe it's not. Do you go through that? Do you, like now, because you got this message, do you sometimes go through, because you've written Toward a Meaningful Life. Yeah. um, No, now I know I I can do it. I'll tell you this, I I speak a lot. Mm -hmm. So every time I speak... I, I, people ask me if I get nervous. I don't really have that because I, I, I'm very, you know, it's like trained and I, I've done it so many times. Mm-hmm. I'm very comfortable. Like, here. you know, many people, the first time they would do this, they, they wouldn't be able to speak because, you know. But to me, that that's the easy part. But sometimes I don't know if I'm going to say the right thing and will I really get my message across. So, But I know that I've done it so many times and I've right. reached the finish. I know I can do it. And I know... I've learned the confidence to change course. If things aren't working, I'll, ch- I'll, I'll shift. I don't go by a script. If the script isn't working for whatever reason, the audience is not responding, then I'll just change my script and I'm confident that I can do that. Right. So I don't always know how it's going to end up, but I know that I'm going to get to the end, you know, the finish line. Maybe I'm going to have to go this way, not right. this way. It's an amazing message. Yeah. Even in, with hardships that we go through, you know, if you're going through a hard time and you know you've pulled through, if you've pulled through once, or you can do it again. Yeah. Even getting ready for Rosh Hashanah for all the women, like you think, am I going to get there? Am I going to be able to make everything? We've done it every year. I've done it before. I can do it again. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great lesson. Yeah, yeah. It's a great um, message. That's that's one thing. I mean, I'm sure, but that that would be the piece of advice that mm-hmm. I got that that impacts me. I remember Abiel Khan told me I was a colleague. Of, I was his colleague. I mean, he was a senior, and I learned much from him. And I also asked him, so how did you end up? He did an encyclopedia on Chassidus. And we, I was working on an encyclopedia, Sefer Lekutim. The Rebbe instituted something in 1976, 77. And I said, how would you learn how to do it? He says, you learn the way I learned. I said, how? Through mistakes. And that's what happened. We printed the first book, and I looked at it. And I said, this is embarrassing. I saw mistakes. And that's how you learn. The last thing you want to do is Stop. What do they say? The French say it, that perfection is the enemy is, is the enemy of good. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. You, you have to forge ahead. I finally, I'll say one more thing because maybe you know it may help people find good mentors, find people who are good at what you like, and learn from them. It's critical. Don't think you know it all. Learn from them because they they'll teach you invaluable things that you can't learn on your own. The experience of something. Let them review it. Let them give you comments and welcome critique. Don't think I only want flattery and compliments. Welcome critique, but you have to be kind, and then you then you'll go from good to excellent. If you can't do that, you'll maybe good, but you're not going to get to excellence. Find those mentors, people that are you like to write. Find a good writer. You like music, find a good musician. It's people who are doing podcasts and stuff like that. Find someone who's done it. Sit with them. They'll give you invaluable advice. 
Maybe you have some time after this this interview <laughs> to be our mentor for interviewing. We can get some. You guys some are masters now. <laughs> People should come to you for mentoring. <laughs> well, we still want to learn from, from the best. So. <laughs> no, yes, I think you're doing great, and yeah, we could talk. Thank God, um, it's really been growing by leaps and bounds, and we have okay, so, all different listeners from all walks of life. So we also have someone who manages our social media now, and she's amazing. That's good. Yeah, yeah. that's because we grew, so we were able to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was. Look, and the fact that you're getting sponsorships is very good because that brings some funding that can help you further expand. You may have to at some point, look, we're always going to come to a point where are we going with this? What's our goal ultimately? Where do you want to be in five years from now? You may not be ready to ask that question yet. I, I don't want to force it, but it's, or it could be you just continue doing this, meeting a lot of people, you know, introducing but that ultimately, where, where, for example, for myself, where I'm now, my team, that's a big question. Where are we going with this? So you have a quarter of a million subscribers on YouTube. And now what? So you want right. to get a million subscribers? So well, it's, it's, That would be good, wouldn't it? Oh, right. <laughs> you, you want to understand your audiences better and, and feed them more of what they want and need, you know? Right. Um, I've actually been trying to get Jordan Peterson, by the way. Once you get him, we'll deal with it. Right. We'll talk about it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we want to know, how do you stay inspired? How do you stay inspired? Yes. Yeah, so you're inspiring us. We want yes. to know, what inspires you? A few things. Firstly, I mentioned earlier, you know, my experiences with my mentors. I'll start with the Rebbe, my father, some others have become, I I own them inside, they live inside me. So there's like this, um, I remember once as a young, as a teenager standing in front of all night by the Atlantic Ocean. It was the summer, my parents had a home near one of the, in, in Bell Harbor here in uh, in Rockaway, not Bell Harbor, Florida, you know. Um, and I stood all night by the Atlantic Ocean. I was waiting for the sea to go to sleep. And I never did. It was relentless. Now the waves didn't stop. And I'll never forget the image. And I realized people like the Rebbe and others have this relentless energy. And like you want, it's like almost what we call the infinite, the infinite power. So whenever I need inspiration, I just turn into that. I turn to that, the waves inside me, and I'm able to access it. That's one thing. Another thing is the needs. You know, another question people ask me often is, how do you keep writing? You know, how, what pushes you to write? Not just the inspiration. So I say, I always ask myself a question that somebody asked me. That's a dilemma. So these dilemmas, they get my juices going because I now have to be creative and figure out what do I say? In other words, I find challenges that come my way and those challenges become catalysts for real movement. When I don't have a challenge, then you know, okay, you just coast. That's another thing that's a big one for me. And because I get myself engaged with people and people share their challenges and problems, so I don't lack inspiration. It's right. always coming from there. Right. And finally, this is ultimately the trick of the trade. I get myself trapped in commitments that I can't get out of. <laughs> no, in a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah And that's I know great. that I don't, that I will regret it later. Yeah. Start a class and now 10 people are coming, 100 people are coming. I can't suddenly say I'm not in the mood. Right. So this keeps me, then now I, now I have to deliver. I can't not right. show up. Right, So that's my third thing that I do. 
It's called I, manufacturing I, I create, motivation. Yeah, it's, ma- it's definitely, manufa- yeah exactly. Yeah. Manufacture that. And then there's finally, I will say, God wired me in a way that I have a lot, a lot of adrenaline and 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 uh, I have stamina. Thank God. Really, I have the same energy as I had when I was seventeen. I really have that drive. Yeah, that's that's what Dennis Prager said. A big drive. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's also me some some craziness. You know, there's also some, <laughs> really you have to be crazy at it. Because there's so many reasons that you could slow down uh, today, next week, or Shoshana is coming. This week, for example, I'm so overwhelmed, I can't even tell you. But it's like, to me, I embrace it. Okay, let's go, you know. keep. That's what keeps you young. And then there's there's the element of, I mean, this may sound weird to you, but I'm like, I, I, have, I don't want to call myself like a Napoleon figure, but I do have a world conquest uh, uh, syndrome. I feel we have to conquer the world with chassidus fill the world with divine knowledge as waters cover the sea. And I feel we can reach 8 billion people. I, I f- firmly believe it. A lot of people think I'm nuts when I say it. I feel that that when it says in the Rambam that the world will be filled with divine knowledge, and when Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tov, and chutza means literally every corner of the world, and that the world, that's chassidus. And I feel confident. First of all, I believe in the product. And I see the need, and I see with technology the possibility. So when you see a goal of 8 billion people, and you see Apple has already reached 2 billion, and 3 right. billion, and I've reached a quarter of a million, trust me, it You're keeps on you path. on your toes. Yeah. Well, they say the ones who are crazy enough to think they could change the world are the ones who do. Right. So Steve Jobs. Good Steve yeah. Jobs. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Okay, so, so there we go, Apple. Those so. are my uh, secrets. Okay. So we usually like to wrap up with uh, a quote a quote that resonates with you or a parting message to bring it all together? Well, I, I have different periods of my life. I, I choose different quotes that speak to me. You know, now I've been... Feel free to share a few if, <laughs> if you have a yeah, few. Yeah, there's the one that, that's getting to me lately is, especially Rosh Hashanah coming, is the Ayeka, when Hashem comes to the Garden of Eden and he says, Adam is hiding, and God says, where are you? And the Alter Rebbe was asked, what does it mean? God doesn't know where he is. And he says, no, this is the eternal question God asks each of us. Where are you? Where do you stand? You know, sometimes you're sitting with someone, they're right there, but they're not present. They have phased out. So you ask them, where are you? Where, you know, I don't, I don't feel that you're with me. So that question that we should ask ourselves, where are you? Where do you stand? Have you betrayed yourself and your calling? That to me is a, and it reminds me if I may quote, not a Jewish source. Oliver Wendell Holmes has this poem that is called The Voiceless. Alas to those that die with their song still inside them. Alas to those that die with their song still inside them. So to me, it's like the mission is we have to find your song and the courage to sing your song. So talking really, quote, you were born an original, don't become a copy. And finally, Michelangelo, if I may, (laughs) when he was asked how he sculpts those beautiful angels in the marble, he said, I saw the angels trapped in the marble, and I carved and carved and set them free. And then finally, I'll quote a Jewish source. Okay. They asked him, so where is God? He said, wherever you let him in. They have my few series of my latest yeah, beautiful, upper yeah. stickers. Beautiful and insp- inspirational. Thank you so much. You know, you, you said you have an overwhelming week, and for making the time to to come to us and 
for us to be able to share your wisdom with all our listeners. Much appreciated. Thank, Thank you. you. And Thank you. I want to wish you and your listeners a very blessed, sweet, healthy yeah. year. Abundance spiritually, materially. Amen. Thank you. And, very same uh, to you. God continue to bless you with the power to reach, communicate, touch many hearts and souls, and empower people. Amen. And you should grow from strength to strength. It's always an honor Amen. to Thank be you. with you. Thank you. Thank you very much.